Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. Coming up on 10 past 9 and a very good morning from the Neil Prendeville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy. Get the Barbie out. If you were listening to the weather forecast, you mightn't think so, but the mail is saying get the Barbie out. The weekend is set to sizzle. Umbrellas may have been out around the country over the weekend, but the good news is that the unsettled weather is forecast to clear by the weekend leading to temperatures of up to 19 degrees Celsius over the coming days. How long it will last is another matter. As Met Aaron says, next week looks changeable. It says uh, that this morning will be cloudy, as we mentioned, with some scattered patches of light rain, but will become brighter as the day progresses. Speaking to the Irish Daily Mail, a Met Aaron forecaster said, generally temperatures will be in the mid to high teens most days from today onwards. You will have those scattered showers, though, as we mentioned. The overcrowding crisis makes the front of the echo. Patients on trolleys day in, day out. An Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation official has warned it has been one of the worst years of overcrowding uh, ever in Cork as patients in the Mercy University Hospital and Cork University Hospital have been consistently on trolleys day in, day out. The INMO's latest trolley watch reveals that 79 people were waiting on trolleys in Cork hospitals yesterday morning, 57 in CUH, 21 in the Mercy and one person in Bantry General Hospital. Liam Conway, Industrial Relations Officer with the INMO's Cork office, warned that the pandemic had exposed and exacerbated a lot of long-standing issues contributing to overcrowding. Crowded hospitals' cauldron of abuse for staff, uh, says the Mail's front page today, corroborating what the Echo are saying. The pressure cooker environment is leading to seven assaults a day on healthcare workers. Hospital overcrowding is creating a pressure cooker environment that has led to an increase in assaults on hospital staff. Since the beginning of 2021, an average of seven assaults a day are taking place on nurses, with many more incidents going unreported according to the INMO. And uh, the union claims this environment is leading to more assaults and is calling for a full security audit of hospitals nationwide to see exactly what measures are in place to protect frontline. Two-year-old schoolgirl was like a child's doll. Garda tells murder trial. Uh, that's the headline in the Times. Barry wrote, Southern correspondent, whom we'll speak to in a moment, uh, writes that a Garda has told how he found the body of a two-year-old girl lying lifeless on a duvet in the apartment of the woman charged with her murder after a neighbour raised the alarm. More on that uh, as the... Uh, program goes on in a few minutes time and uh, there is extensive coverage in the Irish Examiner and other newspapers here including the Daily Mail uh, Garda tells court of carrying out CPR on lifeless Santina, a Garda sergeant uh, Olivia Keller who writes has uh, told the Santina Coley murder trial that he did CPR on the two year old whom he believed was dead because of the grey colour of her skin before detecting a faint heartbeat and uh, we get more on that as I say witness tells of bloodied accused uh, says the star, uh, a woman accused of murdering a two-year-old girl arrived at a friend's home with bare, bleeding feet and said her partner had accused her of trying to suffocate the child. Defendant in Santina murder trial arrived at friend's home distressed and feet bleeding, says the mirror. And moving on to other stories in the examiner, 700 derelict properties within two kilometres of city centre. Owen English reporting that dereliction campaigners say they've identified a staggering 700 derelict properties that are located within a two kilometre radius 
of Cork City Centre. It's more than seven times the official figure on the uh, Cork City Council's derelict sites register. Five new sites were added to the official register last month, almost twice the number added to the list uh, across all 2020. Uh, the latest additions, including the former O'Reilly travel site on St. Anne's Road in Blarney, brings to 13 the total number added to the register since the start of this year. This brings the total number of derelict sites on the register to 105. Frank O'Connor, who along with Jude Sherry has been highlighting the scourge of dereliction, blighting towns and cities across Ireland, said the actual figure in Cork is much higher than official figures suggest. Uh, in the Echo, consultants concerned about delays in gynecology uh, care. The uh, consultants have warned worrying delays in gynecology care, care as the pandemic increased demand and staff shortages have created quite the perfect storm for growing waiting lists. Eleanor O'Regan reporting that the Irish Hospital Consultants Association cautioned of mounting delays for people waiting for planned gynaecology procedures and it says some patients are waiting months to be seen with long average wait times up to 140 days uh, in certain areas. In Cork University Maternity Hospital 2,588 adults were waiting for gynaecology appointments by the end of March. Call for Nash's Boreen to be closed to traffic and a picture of a firefighter uh, working on a blazing, burnt-out car uh, accompanies that story. Renewed calls have been made for the popular Nash's Boreen to be closed to vehicular traffic following an alleged incident of vandalism on Tuesday evening. The amenity walk, which starts at Upper Fair Hill and runs as far as Apple's campus at Holly Hill, has previously been a site where incidents of antisocial behaviour have occurred. And Sinn Féin TD for Cork North Central, Thomas Gould, has said he witnessed a fire in the area while driving back from a meeting in Blarney on Tuesday evening and arrived at the walkway to find crews from Cork City uh, Fire Brigade extinguishing a car fire. Uh, boys claim nervous shock after seeing mum's battle with cancer. Front page of the Examiner today, Anne O'Loughlin reporting that the young sons of Irene Teep who watched their mother suffer in pain before dying from cervical cancer have launched a high court action for nervous shock. The abiding image for Oscar and Noah Teep, who were aged five and two when their mother died, is that she was constantly sick and in excruciating pain. It's claimed they were deprived of her love and devotion at a crucial stage of their development. The boys and their father, uh, cervical check campaigner Stephen Teep from Carrigaline in County Cork, have sued two laboratories and the HSE over the alleged misreporting of two of Miss Teep's, uh, Miss Teep's smear Slides. The Irish Defence Forces need at least 3,000 more troops. Independent front page Philip Ryan reporting that Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney has said at least 3,000 extra soldiers are needed to address the security threats facing Ireland in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mr Coveney said he'll bring a memo to the Cabinet uh, to uh, seek to dramatically increase investment in the Defence Forces, long overdue. And the EU proposes new sanctions on Russia as the Irish Times front page this morning. The European Union has unveiled plans to phase out oil imports from Russia and to sanction its biggest bank, state broadcasters and people uh, responsible for alleged atrocities in the Ukraine. Cities across Ukraine faced a new salvo of missiles fired by Moscow's military and deadly artillery exchanges continued yesterday in the eastern Donbass region. Russian forces attacked the Avastal steelworks in Mariupol. Uh, the uh, last uh, redoubt of Ukrainian troops in the ruined city and a place of refuge for hundreds of civilians. No church linked to Tot Hospital. Martin faces the Doyle. Uh, this is in the Sun, page 2. Eva Bannon reporting the Taoiseach insists religion would have no hand, act 
or part in the new National Maternity Hospital. Concerns were raised over plans to build it on the St. Vincent's Hospital campus. Despite its links to the church, it plans to enter into a long-term lease deal for a patch of land in Dublin off uh, a firm once owned by the Religious Sisters of Charity. It's now been handed over to a new firm, St. Vincent's Holdings, following the agreement of the Vatican. And Michal Martin told the Doyle, an arrangement to lease the land for 300 years at a rent of 10 euros a year amounted to essentially public ownership. He said that the current hospital in Hollis Street was not fit for purpose and said that the issue must move beyond the argument over the ownership of the land the hospital will be built on. It's funny when they want something done, they say that their own health service isn't fit for purpose and they've had many, many years uh, to get that right. But it uh, it is unfit for purpose and that's a good enough reason as anything else uh, to push the new maternity hospital along. Roe versus Wade is triggering societal shockwave in America, the news rippled across the U.S. like a shockwave, passing through living rooms, bedrooms, dinner conversations, and university dorms, leaving American women in disbelief. Uh, this is the Independent today. Could the Supreme Court really be preparing to overturn Roe versus Wade, the landmark case that legalized abortion there nearly 50 years ago? The majority of U.S. women believe abortion should be legal. And Blonnard's RTE sex harassment claim makes all of the uh, morning papers today. Presenter Nee Huffig uh, launches a complaint against the state broadcaster. Blonnard Nee Huffig will claim she was sexually harassed and victimised in RTE. Uh, it's believed the popular telly star has lodged a complaint under the Employment Equality Act against the broadcaster. Uh, reports saying colleagues in RTE are shocked and dumbfounded by the uh, the claim, but Blonnet in harassment claim against broadcaster uh, says the uh, front page today of The Mirror and makes uh, some of the other red tops as well. Eat greens to fight dementia, finally, says the Mail today. You can eat spinach, peas and broccoli, and this could cut your risk of developing dementia. New research suggests people with higher levels of the nutrients found in the vegetables were found to keep their mental faculties for up to decades longer than those who did not, scientists have found. The research published in uh, Neurology found that three kinds of antioxidants were key to fending off dementia. Lutein and zeaxanthin. These are found in green, leafy vegetables such as kale, spinach, broccoli and peas. And beta-crypsoctantin in fruits such as oranges, papaya, tangerines and others. Dr. May Beydoun said of the research, extending people's cognitive functioning is an important public health challenge. Antioxidants may help protect the brain from oxidative stress. Now we have Piri Piri 50 euro vouchers uh, to give away today and tomorrow uh, for the best callers. We'll be looking for certain topics and asking you to come on the air and you can instantly win for yourself uh, a 50 euro voucher for our best caller. And speaking of dementia and Alzheimer's in particular, it is World Alzheimer's Day and in just over an hour's time, I'm going to speak to a young lady, a singer-songwriter whose father died of Alzheimer's and uh, she really really minded him along the way he was a performer I'm not going to give you his name just now let's see if you can guess it though he played with Frank Sinatra he played with Elvis Presley he worked with Phil Spector on the wall of sound and he also played for quite a while with the Beach Boys and played on their historic album called Pet Sounds he had his own TV show and his association with his songwriter is pretty much the same uh, and as successful really as that between Elton John and Bernie Taupin and I'll speak to his daughter in about an hour and ten minutes time on this World Alzheimer's Day Talk to Neil Prenderville now 0818 104 106 Cork's Red FM 
And I'm joined, and I thank him for waiting, and I'm joined, as Neil has been periodically, uh, by Barry Roach, Southern Correspondent with the Irish Times, and a caution to listeners that some of you might find some parts of our conversation disturbing. Uh, and we kind of have two days to talk about. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Mick. How are you doing? I'm conscious. I'm doing fine. The, uh, the, I'm conscious, though, there is a plethora of coverage of uh, the topic at hand in all of the morning papers, and we have to be very careful uh, as uh, things move through the due process of court. Um, but uh, let's look at yesterday's uh, report. Of course, after the long weekend, the court only sat back on uh, Tuesday, and that really uh, concentrated on the uh, on the evidence and statements of Eva Neve McGailey. Yeah, uh the case resumed on, on Tuesday, which was uh, day four, and we heard from a number of witnesses there. It's the case, obviously, of Karen Harrington, who's denied the uh, the murder of Santina Colley, two-year-old Santina Colley, at Elderwood Park in Boring Manor Road on the 5th of July 2019. And on Tuesday, uh, the Central Criminal Court here sitting in Cork heard from Aoife Neve McGailey. She's living on the same floor as... Um, Karen Harrington, or she was rather at the time, uh, and just again to sort of uh, re-familiarise listeners, there, it's a duplex apartment, and so it's two stories, and the upper story, the fourth floor effectively in this case, is the living area in the kitchen, and the third floor, the lower floor, is the bedroom. Okay. Uh, so anyway, Eve uh, McGailey told the court that around 3am on the morning of July the 5th, she heard arguing, it sounded like arguing between a man and a woman, she said voices were kind of muffled for a bit after that, but after a bit after that she said, I heard Karen screaming, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell them." and I heard last mass, she was screaming at some guy Dylan and some guy Colm, she said, she was screaming at them to get the guards, she was going to tell them everything, and she was saying, I'm going to tell them all. Uh, she also told the jury that she heard arguing between what sounded like a man and a woman at around 3am, but that she initially thought, when she heard it first of all, she thought it was coming from another apartment, but she then recognised Karen Harrington, whom she knew since she was a teenager. She recognised one of the voices as, as Karen's. She said she heard the sound of breaking glass, like a window smashing rather than a glass breaking. So she went down the corridor to Karen Harrington's duplex apartment. She was on the same floor, as I say, and she began banging the door to see if everything was all right, but she got no answer. She looked in and saw what she said looked like the shadow of a person standing in the kitchen but she couldn't see them clearly and she was shouting to Karen because she was genuinely concerned for her but she was still getting no answer so she raced down to the main door to the apartment on the lower level that would be on the third floor and she could hear that someone was very upset inside the apartment so she started kicking the door to try and get someone to open it I could hear someone who was very upset it sounded like it was Karen who was upset and was sobbing and Karen came out to the door and said from inside the door is it the guards and I told her it was me she opened the door she said she looked very distressed and very upset. She was very of a jam bottom with flowers and a, a string vest top. And she said she was quieter in herself and she kept apologising. She kept saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to be shouting, causing trouble. I'm going to bed mm. now. But she, she also, also said she noticed marks on Miss Harrison's face. On Karen's face, yeah. And some of her hair had been ripped out as if somebody had grabbed her hair and pulled out clumps. And she also noticed that a Betty Boop statue that Karen loved had been smashed just inside the door. She said, I got the impression she was scared of something. I got this uneasy, I got this uneasy feeling for her. I was not happy about the situation at all. I went back to my apartment and I heard her arguing with someone with a very deep voice. It was a male, unless she, it was a woman with a deep voice, she said. And then she said around 3.42 a.m., Karen Harrington rang her and asked for her lighter but she didn't, told her she didn't have one and Karen said no bother girl uh, so that was sort of the gist of most of uh, Eve and Eve uh, Miguel's evidence we also heard then on Tuesday from another witness a chap called Dylan Olney Karen Harrington lived in number 26 in Elderwood Park he lived in number 27 so he was her immediate next door neighbour and 
he told how he heard Karen Harrington taunting a child who was crying in the early hours of July the 5th. He said, I heard a child crying coming from next door, number 26. That concerned me. I did not think a child should be crying in that kind of situation. I could hear voices. I could hear taunting. Poor baby, are you all right? It wasn't very nice. It was getting worse, and as it went on, um, taunting her, poor baby, it was a kind of sarcastic, and then she was saying, shut up. And he reckoned that the taunting went on for between 15 and 20 minutes. Now, he also told the jury that at around 2 a.m., uh, he heard footsteps on the timber gangway outside the upper floor this would be on the fourth floor the next thing I heard there was an almighty commotion things getting broken and thrown around the place from next door Karen Harrington's apartment a commotion like someone throwing a fit or a tantrum throwing stuff about I heard repetitive banging repetitive thumping he went out to investigate he said it was a person was banging open and closed the sliding door it was uh, Karen Harrington was smashing the door open and closed and he said listen yeah thing ding bat you better stop that or I'll call the guards he said he went back into his own place and there wasn't much after that but she was calling or saying to him go ahead then go ahead call them and call them now and then she went down to the garden below which would be down on four floors down and she was shouting Dylan call him and we, we, it appears that when um, Aoife Miguel, uh, Neve Aoife Miguel was saying hearing somebody she was screaming at some guy Dylan and some guy Colum. The Colum actually appears to have been Colum. Oh, Colum, yeah, Colum, instead Colum. of Colum. That's, that would seem to be, it sort of tallies in that regard. Uh-huh. He said, um, she, he was creeped out by her, her Karen Harrington's behaviour. She was, he said, quote, acting weird. She was acting crazy. And when later she knocked at his door looking for a cigarette lighter, he refused to give her one and told her he wanted nothing to do with her. He was cross-examined then, uh, Dylan Lonely by Defence Counsel Brendan Graham. And he suggested that Karen Harrington was practically asleep from 4 a.m. to 5 a.m. at the time that he said he heard her taunting Santina and that the taunting never happened, but Dylan said he'd no doubt about what he'd heard. He said she was like someone possessed. It was creepy the way she was going on, banging the door and then saying, call them, call them, said Mr. Alney, adding that when he heard the child crying, he became concerned and immediately contacted Anglesey Street Garda Station. He said he couldn't be sure that he mentioned that he, whether he mentioned that he had concerns about a child when he rang Elsie Street, but by the time the guards arrived at 4.31am, it had gone all quiet. He said one of the guards, he asked them what they were looking at, and he replied, murder, but when the guard, he called up to Karen Harrington's apartment, they got no response despite knocking repeatedly, and they left explaining they couldn't enter the apartment without a warrant. He said the guardie told him to contact him if there was any further disturbance. And he told how oh, some minutes after the guardie left then, he heard a man walk up the upper gangway and he recognised him as Michael Cawley, who was, as we know, was in a relationship with Karen Harrington at the time. He asked Michael Cawley what the hell was up and said there was a huge commotion coming from the house, but Michael Cawley went into Karen Harrington's flat only to emerge later, a minute later or so, asked him to call an ambulance and crying, my baby is dead, my baby is dead. He said Michael Cawley was calm at first, but then he appeared shocked and he was inconsolable. Uh, and then he said he saw Karen Harrington leave the apartment just a few minutes later, um, wearing the same flurry pajamas that she'd been wearing earlier in the evening. So, so that was the gist of of Dylan on these evidence on Tuesday. And that's then, building building up a timeline, I suppose. Really, building up in, a time, in, yeah, in going court. through the night, as it were. In and which there are now only eleven jurors. Is that correct? The eleven jurors. One of the jurors had to be discharged on Tuesday, and both sides were agreeable to. Um, to the trial continuing with 11 so we have 7 men and 4 women here in the case now and then yesterday 
uh, we heard from a number of witnesses. I suppose perhaps the one most of us in the media focused on was uh, one of the guards, the first guard in there was guard, guard of David Tobin. And we, we heard from him. He was giving evidence and he actually was told how he was called three times to the apartment complex. The first was at 3.24 a.m. And uh, I was talking to Neil about this last week. This was a call in response to a man called Eric Okanula, who was the partner of Martina Higgins, who was a friend of Karen Harrington's. And Eric called him to try and get Michael Cawley to go home um, from his apartment because they were drinking late. Uh, by the time the guards arrived, Michael Cawley had left, so there was nothing uh, followed from that. Then we heard from Garrett Tobin that he came at 4.49am and that was the first call that we heard from uh, that Dylan, Dylan only mentioned where he arrived in and went up and they uh, Dylan only admitted them to the ground floor. They went up to the apartment, they knocked on the Karen Harrington's door, they looked in the window a letterbox, they looked in uh, through the Venetian blind but they could see nothing uh, suspicious and the place was quiet, there was no sound, sign of disturbance and they didn't have a warrant enter so they left but they did say to Dylan only to um, ring them if there was anything further and then what we heard yesterday I suppose the most dramatic evidence was his third visit and that was at 5.23am and that was after Michael Cawley came out from the apartment having discovered Santina and asking Dylan Olney to ring the guard, so he did. So th- this is the third call. So he said then um, he went into Karen Harrington's duplex apartment after Michael Call, he'd asked uh, Dylan Olney to contact them, and that's when he discovered uh, Santina lifeless on the upper floor of the two-storey apartment. As I say, this may be distressing for listeners. Yes, that's just, let's caution so our listeners again. Some listeners from... Yeah. In fairness to the echo, they actually carry that as a, a top of the story today with warning some readers may find the following content upsetting. So just... And so same here. Yeah, from here on here. in, this interview well, may get a little upsetting for people. So he said when he went into the living room, he saw Santina. She was lying in a quilt. She looked pale and she wasn't breathing. And from looking at her, she appeared deceased to him at this stage. Uh, and it looked as if she'd been placed in the quilt. He said she was like a child's doll. Her eyes were only slightly open. Her hands were lying by her side and her head was back and she was naked and she had a bruise in her forehead and there was a little bit of blood in her mouth and she wasn't breathing. He said he met Santina's father, Michael, at the scene and he was totally distraught, crying, she killed my baby, she killed my baby. But when he asked her who she was, Michael Colley didn't seem to hear and he just kept saying she killed my baby. baby. Ed Garrett Hoban said she was in, he was in total despair. We also heard then from another guard who was in shortly afterwards um, at 5.29, so about six minutes later. He was Sergeant Brian Teen, and he, uh, we heard, was a trained emergency, emergency medical technician, so he had medical training. He arrived in. Uh, he asked Garda Tobin what they were dealing with, and Garda Tobin told them that there was, was a, a dead child and confirmed it was a crime scene. Michael Colley was outside when he arrived saying she killed my daughter again this could be distressing for listeners Sergeant Tien went in and he said when I went into the room I observed the child who appeared to be deceased she was lying on a duvet that was folded up roughly the child was completely naked lying face up on the duvet with her head tilted back and her eyes were open he said her arms were lying by her side her feet were together which had the effect of splaying her knees apart in an unnatural position and her pallor was grey and colourless suggesting to him that there was no object oxygenated blood circulating to her body. He tried to take a pulse at her hand, but he couldn't find any. Then he tried to take a pulse from her carotid artery in her neck. Again, failed to find one. And although her body was still warm, he said, he listened to her chest and found no sign of breathing. However, he began to perform CPR on her. And obviously he's seen with a child, so he had to be... Um, 
delicate I suppose, I suppose CPR nettled he moved around to a solid surface and as he began to compress her chest he felt a faint heartbeat but her heart was beating so rapidly he said it was impossible to take a heart rate that was the first time he made an assessment that the child might be alive he said uh, adding then that he noticed that she had bruised into her forehead and emergent bruising all over her body while he also noticed there were blood between her teeth when he opened her, her mouth so that he made a decision not to give CPR on that, or not to give um, uh, um, mouth to mouth resuscitation at that stage but to continue uh, with the um, compressions, with the compressions. Uh, he was joined then by some paramedics from uh, Cork City Fire Brigade they had oxygen they gave sentient oxygen but they couldn't resuscitate her she was also treated by an advanced HSE paramedic at the scene and then she was taken to CUH where she received further treatment and we heard then uh, in a statement later in the evening from uh, uh, Professor Deirdre Murray um, a consultant paediatrician that uh, she had uh, devastating injuries and she passed away in her mother's Richard O'Donoghue's arms at 9.20am on the 5th of July so they were sort of the main witnesses we also heard this was to be, to be fair uh, on yesterday yeah yesterday from um Karen Harrington's two sisters, um, Michelle Harrington, uh, they're, they're younger and they told how Karen effectively assumed the role of a parent rearing them when she was 15 because of a family crisis. And she said that, uh, Michelle said she spoke to her sister late on the night of July the 4th. And when they spoke again around noon the next day, July the 5th, they had seen what happened on the news and she asked Karen what had happened. She said Karen could barely speak. She kept saying Santina's dead. Uh, and she told her that she had been asleep in the apartment when she heard a child crying and she woke up to find Santina was dead and she said Karen told her the reason Santina had no clothes on when she was home was because her top got wet earlier and there was blood at the scene we'd heard about that and Karen Harrington told Michelle that she'd cut her own foot during the evening um, At this stage she was cross-examined then by uh, defence counsel Ben de Grian and he, she agreed that he was, she was clearly very upset and the reason that she wasn't able to throw any light on what happened was because she was asleep and only woke up on hearing the child crying. Uh, another sister, Janice Harrington, told how she spoke to Karen a day or two after what had, and asked her about what happened in the apartment and she told her she didn't know what had happened and all she could remember was Michael Cawley with Santina in her arms, or in his arms, sorry, telling her she was dead. He, she said then that she took Santina in her arms from Michael Cawley and then handed her back to Michael and ran from the apartment. Um, and she said she'd spoken to Karen at about 3.35am on the morning of July the 5th and she sounded if she'd just woken up and was going to go to sleep. And then we heard from another witness, Yvonne Walsh. She was up and about and sitting outside her house of a cigarette um, outside her house in Cherry Lawn in Blackrock at about 6am on the morning of July the 5th when she saw Karen approaching. She said, I thought I'd seen a ghost. I know Karen so well. The way she appeared to my home that morning, she was in shock. Uh, she, I saw her face and she was distraught. She asked what was wrong and Karen said she thought there was something wrong with Santina and Yvonne Walsh gave her a hug and Karen said she didn't know what was after happening and they weren't aware at that stage that Santina was, was, was dead. Or she, she said as far as she knew the child was laying down in the blanket. She said she just got a shock because Michael Cawley placed the baby in her arms and said, Karen, you smothered my child. And she said that the child was lifeless and her head was sloppy. She drove Karen back to Elderwood that morning then to see what had happened. And there were Cardi and ambulance personnel about. And Michael Colley came over to her and asked Karen what she had done to Santina. He said, Karen, what have you done to my child? There was this big growling man coming at us. And uh, Yvonne Walsh said she had done Karen from birth and she was the only one apart from her own mother 
that she ever trusted to mind her daughter. So again, suggesting, and we heard as well that Karen was always good with children and she'd gone to hospital with um, Santina previously and previous appointments when she'd fractured them. Um, with Michael Cawley, sorry, when she had a fractured femur, she attended all the hospital appointments and that she was very good with children. And I think, as Michelle said, she'd never seen her being mean to a child and uh, was always good with children. So th- th- there are some of the witnesses we've heard over the last two days. Um, we're continuing again today uh, and tomorrow and into next week. So there's uh, there's quite a way to go yet. But it's, uh, How it's, long more do you expect? I would expect all next week and maybe into uh, the start of the following week. Uh, the state may finish their case sometime next week and then it's we're not sure what the defence position is obviously in these uh, all cases in all cases the onus is on the state to prove um, guilt not on the defendant to prove their innocence so there's no obligation on Karen Harrington's witness box uh, but we, we don't know what witnesses the defence are going to call at this stage so it you know, it could, as I say, could go on next week and possibly into the start of the following week. Judge, or Mr. Justice Michael McGrath, when he was swearing the jury, said it would run at least three weeks, most likely four, and with a slight possibility that it might extend into a day or two on the fifth week. But next week would be day three, or sorry, week three, rather, my apologies. Week three, yeah. And, um, and obviously we've, we've missed days with bank holidays and things like that. Um, and he wasn't sitting last Friday. So uh, next week would be week three. So we're certainly going to, we could go we're going to week four. I wouldn't imagine we're going to week five. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they're moving faster than they thought. But uh, you know, we yeah. still have a, a way to go as it were. You've covered lots of crime, um, Barry. You're, you're generating a lot of copy here, uh, and I'm cognizant that uh, journalists such as yourself need to be very, very careful what they put in print, lest they jeopardise any, uh, you know, any issue that's say. Uh, but on a personal level, how difficult is it in a case such as this for, for people like you? Well, it is. There's no doubt about it. I think everybody's feeling it. You know, a two-year-old child, it's a difficult, very difficult case. And I'm not sure we've heard, we've heard some very distressing evidence so far, but I suspect we may hear more. So it's, um, no, it's, it's, it's not a, an easy case to cover for anybody. Uh, not just for the reporters, obviously, for guards. I mean, some of the guards just uh, needed time to compose themselves when they were giving their evidence uh, it is a distressing case, and uh, you know Karen Harrington was quite upset in the yesterday listening to some of that. Um, Bridget, I think it was Bridget I don't know, Santina's mother. Uh, somebody behind me got up and moved, went out uh, when uh, the guards were giving evidence of how they found Santina. I, I, I think it was Bridget. I'm not sure, but you know it's a distressing case for so many people, and um, and it's difficult for a jury as well. I would imagine to hear. So, you know, there's, a, there's just the nature of the evidence, and there's no. There's no avoiding that, unfortunately, but um, anyway, we, 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 we move on and uh, hopefully, you know, it's a week more, at least, if not more, but we, uh, it's, it's going, I would think, it seems to be going faster than people expected, but it's still a, still a long and arduous case, as it were, to cover. Well, Barry, thank you for hanging in there. Thank you for the detail. It doesn't make for easy reading. It's not easy to even interview on, and I have to let you lead because I don't want to ask anything that might up, uh, you know, uh, upset any train of evidence or any uh, you know any direction of the court but Southern Correspondent with the Irish Times hopefully touch uh, base with you again on either Friday or Monday Barry uh, yeah we, we might go next Sunday next week perhaps uh, again I think, uh, exactly you know, it's, it's on a case I think it's not that it's, it's, it's a hugely significant case obviously but I think maybe every couple of days rather than every day might be the, oh, absolutely. the, 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 the way to, 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 to go with it yeah. okay Thank you, Barry. That's uh, Barry Rudd, Southern Correspondent with the Irish Times. Not easy to listen to. Uh, and we did caution that some listeners might find some of that conversation 
uh, disturbing. Now then, let's get to the other business of the show. On the Neil Prendival Show, you can text us, of course, anytime on 0868104106. Agencies and the outsourcing of work has taken away from our economy. Schemes and agencies have ruined working in this country. Not a penny extra in tax is paid from these schemes and people aren't earning enough to pay much tax. Uh, hi, could I ask, Mick, is there any group or Facebook pages for people with DID, Disassociate Identity Disorder, in Ireland? I've recently been diagnosed, and there are little or no services in Ireland for Disassociate Identity Disorder. So if I could meet or chat to people in Ireland with the same illness, it would be beneficial. Uh, please don't use my name. No, we'll keep that. Now, Paddy, uh, listening to Paddy there, uh, that's Paddy, of course, who was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. We were looking for uh, a recliner chair, which we got very quickly for him. Uh, listening to Paddy there, my heart is breaking for him and his beautiful young family, wishing him all the best and have donated to his GoFundMe. He's an amazingly positive man, considering all they've been through. On nursing, uh, a nursing degree is four years in UCC. A career is a six-month course, hardly the same. Uh, that's in relation to our uh, home carers uh, issue. Uh, on Russia, Mick, I'm curious as to why you went through today's newspapers and didn't mention Russia's threat to nuke Ireland. This is a text from yesterday, shown on Russia's state TV, and the Russian audience agreed with it. I'd like to hear from Russians living in Ireland, and maybe you think a threat like this to our country isn't important enough for your program. Au contraire, uh, not at all. The reason I didn't uh, cover it yesterday is because we covered it in great detail on Tuesday, the first day back after the bank holiday weekend, and I really didn't feel it merited going through it again. We covered it so uh, heavily on Tuesday, so I hope that keeps you happy. Uh, very funny when I hear our media going on about Russians state TV and the propaganda they dish out when our media did exactly the same during the pandemic. You lot are no better. On the subject of homes, hi Mick, welcome back. There was a bungalow on Balancholic. It's on daft.ie. I'm not sure if it's sold, but I think it's too high for that woman. Anyway, it's a lovely little bungalow in Muscari Estate, Marie and Clan, and uh, somebody else said there's a lovely bungalow uh, for people in that budget area under 300,000 in Bandon uh, for 285,000 on myhome.ie. We spoke about Piper's caravan yesterday and Brendan Piper saw uh, this caravan, uh, said this caravan is part of their heritage and tradition, but yet the city council said it's illegal. But travellers can run wild through estates with horses and dogs on the loose and say it's part of their heritage and that's okay by the city council, so says Desi. Now, getting back to the piers uh, that are closing, we need more public facilities like Paddy's Point Slipway. The slipway in Monkstown is frankly dangerous, reversing off a main road onto a narrow slipway. There are now double yellow lines uh, on that main road, uh, making it even more precarious uh, to launch a boat there. We do this twice a day with our powerboat school based in Monkstown. If we looked at a model like that in New Zealand, where every small town has a slipway and a sailing club, we could have a tourism industry that rivals them. And so says Zach Barker of Powerboat Cork. Uh, Cork County, uh, here's a little, uh, is it a limerick or a poem? Cork County Council, our hands they tie, making it harder the more we try. Sitting in the boardroom with their piece of the pie, while people outside are looking up at the sky. So says Billy M. Hi Mick, the reason Spike Island is so controlled is to stop outside private operators bringing visitors to the island without using licensed ferries 
It's all about the money, says Billy M. And we covered horse racing in great detail yesterday. All media hype. There's worse things said about human beings playing sports. Have you ever been to a GAA match? Hi, Mick. What is she talking about? It's the wrong terminology to be using on an animal at all times. It can lead to animal cruelty, which I'm totally against at all times. Maybe the horse is being mistreated or being abused along the way, says Kathleen. Hi, I've rode horses for the first 25 years of my life, including races, and I believe racing is a disgrace from top to bottom. If the whip don't hurt, why use it? Uh, what about travellers' horses driven to their debts? Ask her about that. I know you will not. I mentioned that yesterday. I would have if I had the uh, had the text in time. People are looking to Ted Walsh for what he said, uh, yet lots of people tell, tell jokes about Shergar after the IRA killed him, says this texter. Uh, people are hypocrites. If Gordon Elliott was photographed with his foot on a dead rat, would there have been such an outcry as there was with a horse? They're both mammals, so says Paddy. And a couple more. I make my daughter lives in Venice and they eat horses there all the time. They do the same in France. I can bring you a sample if you wish. No thanks. Uh, listening to the talk on the radio about horse racing is really infuriating, says our final texter. The only people that seem to not object to the cruelty the animals put under are the ones filling their pockets. It's a money game. It's not a sport when the horse doesn't have a choice as to whether they want to partake or not. The comment from the man, nothing like a day at the races that people enjoy, is disgusting. What about the poor horse being forced against its will to run by the lash of the of the jockey's whip just for you to enjoy your day at the races? Truly a shameful act by humans. And uh, sorry, there is one final text on the driving license issue. Hi Mick, regarding the driver's license exchange, you know they drive on the right-hand side of the road in Ukraine. What do you think about these Ukrainian drivers? Will they uh, do the first time? What will they do the first time they come to a roundabout? Fair point. And that comes from Richie in Toker. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818-104-106. Red FM. And a very good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show at 9 minutes to 10. This is Mick Mulcahy. Now, Rory Coughlin, or Colin, uh, you always have to check, uh, join us on line three. Which one is it, Rory? Hi. Is Nick. it Colin or Coughlin? Colin. Colin, okay. It depends. Uh, if you go west of Balancholic, uh, there's predominantly Coughlins. Uh, but yeah. you are a Colin. Now, baby Jack was born on the yeah. 27th of July, 2021. And uh, what has his life been like since? Um, well, I suppose for starters, he's, he's never left, uh, left Crumlin Hospital. Wow. Um, but, you know kind of in the interim like he's you know it's been up and down he's had some uh, rocky patches but uh, he's we've had some good times too you know um, born very premature Rory um, well no he he wasn't particularly premature um, he, he was a planned uh, uh, section um, so prior to um, his birth at about 12 weeks we knew that there was an issue with him um, and I suppose at that point the diagnosis was uncertain and after some genetic tests then they just came back negative to say that there was no obvious genetic cause um, and at about 20 weeks then he was diagnosed as having a heart condition on top of um, his omphalocyte or his central line defect um, so this was kind of all stuff that we knew um, before he was born and um, because of that, then he was uh, a planned section. So he was born at 36 weeks um, uh, in the coom, and then he was transferred straight over to Chroma. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of his start. And um, then after about three weeks, 
um, he was having what they call these desaturation events. So his blood oxygen levels were dropping significantly. Um, and that wasn't explained by his heart condition or any of the, the other things that were wrong with him. So, um, so he's, he's, he's a fighter, he's hanging in there, but he's had life-threatening medical challenges to include uh, a heart condition that necessitated major constructive surgery, underdeveloped lungs, breathing difficulties which required a tracheotomy, uh, displacement yeah. of liver uh, that required relocation for the liver, relocation surgery. Uh, yeah. and, and you guys have been living in Ronald McDonald House um, for quite a while now. Yeah, so, yeah, we've been here since he was born. And, you know, so it's, uh, it's uh, it takes a bit of getting used to, you know, um, I suppose between all the ups and downs of the, you know, what's going on um, with Jack. And then, you know, um, I suppose just trying to kind of get a, a, accustomed to, to life away from home then as well, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it, 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 you know it, it has its rewards, but it's challenging too. Mm-hmm. You know. Now, of course, his prognosis all going well. You're going to have to live with the tracheotomy for a number of years, I imagine. But the prognosis all going well would be reasonable. Would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely. So he's um, he's just recovering from his second heart surgery. Um, uh, so we're hoping that he'll be transferred out of ICU relatively soon. Um, and then I suppose that that stage then we look at the you know kind of begin the process of him going back to Cork and he will have his tracheostomy for a number of years and uh, we don't know exactly how long I suppose it's dependent on for how long he needs it um, but yeah the, the overall outlook is for him to have a, a kind of a, a, a normal enough life obvious mm. he's already had a pacemaker fitted yeah yeah, he's had a pacemaker that was part of um, the first heart operation, yeah. Okay. Now, if the tubes that assist his breathing become dislodged, this is a huge emergency because uh, you'll need immediate intervention to save his life. Does, does that suggest he's going to have constant uh, nursing supervision as a necessity? Yeah. So, basically, before we go home, um, we, uh, we have to complete uh, training, but as part of uh, going home, the uh, care package is organised um, for us in which, you know, basically we'll have, like, he'll, he'll require uh, 24-7 care. Um, so, yeah, uh, the care package will be organised in which uh, a nurse will call to the house and basically look after Jack at night. Mm-hmm. I, I can sense, though, a sense of, you know, inbuilt optimism and not a little determination a large amount of determination to do everything in your power to help make his life as normal as possible. Oh, absolutely. Like, um, I suppose we, we do have a lot of discussions about, like, you know, what his life is is, is going to be like and, and as much as possible, you know, like, we think that there, that there shouldn't be too many limitations, obviously, like, with things like a tracheostomy, he can't go swimming and stuff like that, like, but, you know, we view that as, look, it, it's hopefully temporary and, so these are some things that he can just take up later in life, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and as regards his heart, then, the, as I say, the prognosis is for him to have a, a, a full life. So um, from that perspective, yeah, we'd be very optimistic um, uh, in terms of his overall outcome. So, yeah, like we're, as I say, we're pretty hopeful that uh, it, will, it will work out. Um, but as I say, there's, you know, there's kind of, 
short and medium term challenges for, for Jack to overcome, you know? Yeah, now you have a very successful, so far anyway, a very successful GoFundMe campaign because you need yeah. to convert the garage in your home in Bishopstown and that's going to act yeah. as a specialist bedroom and bathroom unit for Jack. Now you're currently two thirds yeah. of the way to, it doesn't seem exorbitant, a 25,000 euro conversion cost and uh, if yeah. anybody wants to donate there, uh, just go into GoFundMe and look under the heading of Help us build new digs for Jack. Uh, maybe yeah. not. Maybe that's a little uh, off topic, but the digs, I suppose, uh, you know, when you break it down, that's what you're going to need. Uh, help yeah, us exactly. build new digs for Jack. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. As you said, like the, um, you know, we we need um, the the room converted basically to accommodate Jack and to accommodate a night nurse. And so the the room was initially um, a kind of a converted garage. And we used it as a kind of a storeroom, basically, and a kind of, um, you know, but a, like it, it's too cold and wouldn't be suitable for anyone kind of staying there long term. So, uh-huh. yeah, it just it needed to be done, you know. Okay. Uh, and, of course, you were pressed by friends to do this GoFundMe. It's not something you, you made public yourself of your own volition. How do you pronounce your partner's name? Because I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. I haven't come across it before. Yeah, it's uh, Nadej. Nadej, N-A-D-E-G-E. Yeah. I would have got it wrong. Um, yeah. So, Don't in, worry, in, I got it around the first time as well. In 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 the short term, obviously, uh, you've got a little fighter on your hands. Young Jack has been fighting since the very day of his birth, uh, yeah. and you'd like to get him home. Uh, you know, the constant supervision notwithstanding, you do really need to get this uh, GoFundMe over the line to hit the twenty five thousand to to kind of part pay, I suppose, for everything that you're going to need to do. Once again, Absolutely. you'll find further details uh, on uh, GoFundMe under the heading of. Help us build new digs for Jack. What does the coming weeks hold for you, Rory, and for Nadej? Um, I suppose for us and for Jack, I suppose that the, hopefully we, we're going to get out of ICU next week um, and then we'll be transfer, transferred back to the ward that he was in, which is the transitional care unit. Um, then we have to finish off our training in terms of um, just the care for the tracheostomy and basic life mm-hmm. support and stuff like that. Where's all of this left you work-wise? Um, <laughs> you you find ways of balancing these things, you know. Um, I suppose longer term, Nadej will look at uh, taking care of his leave, so we will be kind of down in income uh-huh. as such. Um, I'm self-employed, so it's um, it's great having flexibility, but at the same time, yeah. the work doesn't go away, like okay. <laughs> you know. Uh, so, so, so it's always there. All I can do, Rory, yeah. is uh, salute your positivity and, and that of Nadege and salute the, uh, you know, the determination of baby Jack to come through this. Once again, GoFundMe, help us build new digs for Jack. Uh, we'll stay in touch and please keep in touch with us if there are any developments, if there's any other way we can help. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much. Thanks a million. I'm Lana O'Connor. Red FM News is first for local, national and international news. And you can stay up to date by tuning into our hourly news bulletins or by clicking on redfm.ie. Get it off your chest. Text The Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. And some news coming into us of Operation Tara. 60,000 euro worth of cannabis has been seized and a man arrested in Cove County Cork yesterday. Uh, Gardaí have seized 60,000 uh, euros worth of cannabis, 9,000 euros in cash, and arrested one man 
following an operation in Cove on the 4th of May. Uh, as part of Operation Tara, Gardy attached to the Middleton District Drugs Unit searched a house in the East Hill area of Cove. That's where I grew up. Uh, cannabis herb worth approximately €60,000. Analysis is pending on that, of course, along with €9,000 in cash was found in the course of the search. And a man in his late teens was arrested and detained under the provisions of Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act 1984 for questioning at Cove Garda Station. He has since been released without charge and a file is now being prepared for the Director of Public Prosecutions. And investigations, as you might imagine, are ongoing. Now, on the Neil Prendeville Show, it's time to get out and about. Yesterday, Kevin took a short trip down to Grattan Street and the Cork Educate Together schools, who are currently battling the council to get a traffic warden. Uh, Situated on the main thoroughfare from the north side to the west of the city, Educate Together say, after a number of close calls, it's only a matter of time before one of their pupils will be seriously hurt or killed, trying to simply get in and out of school. Kevin spoke to Principal Maura O'Connor and the six-class kids who are battling traffic of all kinds to get just inside the gates. Hi, I'm Sienna. And uh, have you had your own close calls coming in and out of school? Have you found it difficult to get in and out with the with the with what's there at the moment? Uh, yeah, definitely. Like I do. Uh, they get class for an hour after school and it ends at four so then usually I have to walk back across that and I have had a very close call where there was just a motorbike zooming away and I genuinely seen like my life just like flash before my eyes it was very scary what happened exactly um so there was just someone on a motorbike and I was about three quarters the way off the off the crossroad and um it was literally less than a metre away from me and I genuinely thought something bad was going to happen. So did it pass in front of you or did you kind of run and it passed behind you? Or? Like it was about to go in front of me, I'd say about four metres away and then I just ran for my life. Just God, that's so scary and I suppose like you come home then you're almost like it's, you're, you'd almost be rattled, wouldn't you? You'd be so scared after that. Yeah, it was one of my worst experiences crossing it. Uh, hi, I'm Matty and I'm a 6th class student in Cork Educate Together National School. So Matty, um, you're going in and out of school every day. Um, how many near misses have you had? Have you have you had a couple of near misses? Have you had cars fly past you? Uh, yes, I had a couple of near misses. Can you explain one of them to me? Describe how it went. Oh, yeah. So uh, I go to school and I'm holding my sister's hand. I mean, this usually doesn't happen anymore, but it once happened when my dad was going to work and he had to leave early. So uh, a car like zoomed like right behind us as we were walking. Do you feel safe walking to school? Like, usually I walk out the, down the footpath, but down the, the pedestrian crossing, it's a little bit like 50-50. Mm. Amira, so tell me your own experience. Um, have you had close co- misses with cars? Have you have you struggled with it coming in and out of school? Um, yeah, I take the bus every morning, so I have to cross that road, like, every single day. Mm. And, yeah. And I suppose this is the thing we were talking tomorrow there about the different lanes. Like it, it's such a the, the one on the left is kind of freer than the one on the right. So when you're coming from this side and you step out, you kind of always have to be so careful. The right lane is always backed up on Grattan Street, and cars in the left lane zoom past because they see the lights are green at the courthouse. And um, due to this, lots of children have been nearly knocked down halfway across the pedestrian crossing. And it must be very scary when you come from the other side. As well, if there's traffic there, you're you're almost trying to peer around cars to make sure there's nothing there that's going. To to hit you yeah um i'm 12 now and i've been taking the bus since i was six and it's still like really well like it's still a bit scary because like you just like don't see the cars and then like, a lot of times like they don't see you 
and you've been six years taking the bus is this the is trying to cross the road here the most dangerous part of that journey uh definitely yeah we have been actively campaigning and lobbying for a school traffic warden for the last number of years we have knocked on every door um every time we put in an application to cork city council the answer remains the same there's no funding that budget has not increased in the last five years now we are a city center school we desperately require a school traffic warden the volumes of traffic have increased but it would appear that five years ago had we applied perhaps we might have gotten a school traffic warden and because we didn't we weren't in then we're not in now hi i'm eli Eli, I suppose, tell us your own experience of trying to, to get in and out of school in the morning. Well, I always normally take the bus to school, and so I would have to cross the road mm. sometimes if I wanted to get over to the school. And I haven't had any close calls, but I have seen cars zooming, like going to the zebra crossing. Mm. Like, I don't actually have any close calls. It's just I do see cars coming along. Hi, I'm Ondine. Um, I haven't been here for that long, but I can already tell that the school definitely needs a traffic warden mm -hmm. because the road is so busy. And um, where were you before you came here, Ondine? Do you mind me asking? Um, I was in New Zealand, mm -hmm. so... And I suppose in New Zealand, do you find that schools are were better protected? Were you guys better protected where you were in school? I know I'm sure you weren't in as built up an area, but still. One of my old neighbouring schools, they were on a really, really busy road and the cars were always going so fast. Mm. So they didn't do much to protect them there either, no? No, there was nothing there. Mm. And I suppose, tell us a little bit about the funding that you guys are doing in Student Council to try and help uh, alleviate this issue. Cork City Council say there is no money, but seeing as some schools have two traffic wardens and we have none, that's just not fair. A school traffic warden costs around 300 euro a week and we think that our safety is worth much more. Mm. And as you say, like some schools have too, and they're not in as built up an area as you are it's 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 uh, like what, what did you when you found that out first how did it make you feel um i was generally quite annoyed because if they have two and they're not on a, such a busy street then that's just not fair what's the short-term temporary solution you've managed to find this morning well, actually, this morning we had two lovely members of Angarda Siakona standing outside and the change in driver behaviour was remarkable. They could see them halfway down Washington Street. There was plenty of space. Nobody straddled the crossing. And indeed, everybody was extremely mindful of the pedestrians crossing. Two guards out there of a Monday or whatever morning we have now, Wednesday morning, is a complete waste of resources. But if it keeps us safe, we are very glad to have it. Uh, well done to Kevin on that Vox Pop. Principal of Cork Educate Together, Maura O'Reardon, has uh, also told the Neil Prenderville Show following the meeting that a meeting has now been scheduled between herself and members of the Council Roads Authority to come to a solution. Thomas Gould, TD, is on line two. You put this question to Micheál Martin in the door last week, Thomas. Good morning, Rick. Morning. Yes, I did. Because um, I suppose I was talking to the principal and uh, some of the parents, and they're very upset. Uh, they're very concerned at the risk that their children are having to face every morning. Um, like, you, if you know, you know the junction, Mick, it's a very busy junction. It's in the heart of the city. It's one of the busiest thoroughfares. Just describe exactly where it is, uh, Thomas, for those of our listeners who don't know. Well, you're coming up Grattan Street, 
Uh, you know, it's actually behind the courthouse and uh-huh. it's the side of St. Francis Church. And what happens is there's a pedestrian crossing there from one side to the into the school. And the problem then is one lane of traffic on the left is coming up to go into the city centre, where the other lane of traffic is coming up on the right and they are going to Washington Street. Yep. And the problem then is the city centre traffic moves slowly so you can have people blocking the pedestrian crossing. But the bigger risk then is the people on the right-hand lane are going faster and they're rushing and they're going for the lights. So you have two lanes of traffic. One is at a crawl space and one is going faster. And then you have young children trying to cross the street, which is with a pedestrian crossing that is being blocked and kids are having to walk in and around cars. And moving cars at that. Yes, and it's a really risky situation. No, I raised it with the T-shirt because I felt they had to because... The, the school have been, and the parents have been looking for this for years. All they're looking for is uh, a school traffic warden to make sure that kids can cross the road safely, which most of the schools in Cork that need it have it. But this is coming down to funding. And to be honest, I'm disappointed with the T-shirt's response because he was saying, we want this, it's up to the city council. But what the city council are saying is they don't have the funding. And this is the age-old problem the government blaming the council and the council blaming the government and then young children are having to run the gauntlet every morning. Uh, a risky situation. And as you listen to the you know, Vox Pop there, how, uh, how dangerous it can be. Mm-hmm. But if they're funding the likes of the greyhound industry, as we heard yesterday, and the horse racing industry to the tune of 70 million, surely they can find 300 uh, a week for uh, a lollipop person that would ensure and enshrine children's safety. You see, what it comes down to here, Mick, is choices, right? And obviously, the, this funding has been capped. As I said, there has been no increase in funding in the past five years. Uh, we, like, this is one of the busiest schools. Like, the, the excuse of having no funding shouldn't be uh, acceptable. The, the, the issue here is this, these children are at risk. The council accept that, right? So if the council accepts that these children are at risk, that money must be found somewhere because at the end of the day, you have children going to school every morning and like you hear so many kids, they're getting the bus into school. Uh, you have some parents having to bring their kids to school because they're so concerned, they feel they have no other choice. Like people have work to go to, they have college, you have families to look after and they'll have to go into school then in the morning with their children because they're so nervous that the situation is so risky. Mm-hmm. And that's not me saying this, Mick. That's the principal, that's the teachers, that's the parents, and more importantly, that's what the children are saying. Yeah, you mentioned going for the lights. That's a natural part of driving when you're in a stressful city centre situation. But I take your point that on the left-hand side, if you're coming up the right, uh, you have a tendency maybe to gun it to try and get to the lights because there's traffic congestion all over the city. And if you have a very slow or stopped lane uh, on your left, you may not even see that there's, uh, there's a road crossing there for children. You may not even see the children. And you see, the problem, Mick, is because this is such a busy road in the city centre, if, if this was in the middle of a residential area where people live and they know there's a school and they know there's a pedestrian crossing, people will be more cautious. But if you're driving and you're trying to get through the city, whether you're going to the hospital, whether you're going to work or whether you're going to college, right, there's a chance that you don't realise there's a pedestrian crossing ahead and you're, you're trying to make the lights and we know in the morning most people are rushing to work or whatever they're going. And then you have these children looking nervously up and down. Actually, just one way, 
and they're looking and they're kind of trying to gauge when they can cross. Well, all you need is a traffic warm, a lollipop person, put up the, the sign and walk the people across. I see it. I drop my old daughter to school in the morning, uh, three mornings a week. And I see uh, these traffic wardens, these safety wardens, and how they walk. And it's the safest way to go, Mick. It's like for a couple of thousand euros, we could ensure that these children are safe. And, and like you listen to the voices there of the, the children you interviewed. This is a really excellent school that has grown over the years. And what we're saying is uh, saying there's no money there is not acceptable. Yeah, I, I love the variety of accents, number one. It's obviously, you know, they're, they're coming from all over. Uh, but I love the confidence as well, especially in some of them at the end there to say, you know, our lives are worth more than this. Uh, please, it's only a 300 a week. And, and Mick, what is it? It's not even for the full year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so okay, that's uh, that's that topic, and I want to uh, get to another topic if we can. Uh, will you keep in touch with us, Thomas, about if there's any progress, or even if uh, Antishuk uh, softens a little and maybe directs the council to find the funding or whatever needs to be happen, uh, whatever needs to happen to move from bureaucracy to uh, definite action. Now, you uh, there's also been a meeting held about the Blarney Post Office on Tuesday. Tell us what's happening there. Okay, what's happening there, Mick, is on the twelfth of May is the closing date for people interested in taking over the Blarney Post Office. The current lady, postmistress who's running it, has handed in her notice. Uh, she actually handed in a number of months ago. Now, she's done brilliant work out there. The community love her. But unfortunately, she feels it's not sustainable. Now, she's willing to work with Unpost or any new person who wants to come in, and she will help with them getting up and running. But for her and her family, it's not worth it. It's not viable. And uh, on this end of the May, she uh, she has given her notice to quit. Okay, so if it's not if it's not working and if it's not viable for her and her family, how would it be for somebody else? You see, Mick, when these new contracts came in in 2017 and 18, uh, there was supposed to be a PSO come in um, that would that would provide funding to ensure that uh, post offices could remain open. No, What's a PSO? Something like a permanent service order or something? Is no, it? that's a public service obligation. Okay. So that would no, so the the postmasters union are looking for seventeen million, and they reckon seventeen million will keep the post offices open. There are nine hundred twenty-one post offices, and we believe without this PSO, eight hundred eighty of them are at risk of closure. But how, how could they be deemed to providing any other service than a public service obligation? They're inherent into the fabric of every community. Uh, you don't want to be travelling 5, 6, 10, 20 miles to post a letter or avail of, uh, you know, your social security service payment or whatever you're getting from your local post office. But, well, Mick, for the people of Blarney, if Blarney was to close, the nearest post offices are either Cloreau or Blackpool. No. This will have a really negative effect on the older community. There's a great post office in Blarney. There's a great community spirit. Uh, we had a meeting on Tuesday night where in the community centre it was a full house, standing room only, and the people there said that they, are, they can't lose the post office. It's too important to the people of Blarney. But at the end of the day, this is a government decision. And the thing about this, Mick, and we're not making politics about it, but we have to. Seeing the fall when they were in opposition put forward a motion to deliver this PSO. And they've been in government for two years and they haven't done it. So what we're doing is we're holding 
show support outside the post office next Monday at one o'clock and we're going to put the government under pressure to deliver this and to save Blarney Post Office. Now, there's been many, many uh, post offices closed in Cork. Allahy's closed. Nearest one is Irie's, 10.9 kilometres. Ballanine closed. OK, that's quite adjacent to Enniskeen. Ballanine and Enniskeen, essentially the, the same, uh, two different names, but essentially, this, you know, it's, it's a bigger town divided in two. 1.3 kilometres uh, was the uh, disturbance there. Uh, Ballyclaw, nearest uh, Lombardstown at 7.4 kilometres. Uh, we had Ballyno, the nearest being uh, Connor. At uh, 4.1, Carrigadrihid closed, nearest Coachford. Enniskeen is another one there. Drina, the nearest one being League. That's an extra 9.5 kilometres on those locals. In Lacquerot, the nearest one being Yall at 5.3 kilometres. Manan Bridge residents have now to go into Carrigaline and travel an extra 7 kilometres. In New Tupot House, north of Mallow, the nearest is Buttevant. Uh, which is 5.9 kilometres in Rock Chapel. Uh, closure there means people travelling 10 kilometres exactly further uh, to Brosna Post Office. And in Shanbalimore, Shambala, uh, Kildarri, the, uh, the, the nearest next post office at 6 kilometres. So Blarney would have to travel to where? Into Clarot? Into Clarot or Blackpool. But Mick, just to let you know, Shannon Street Post Office closed in January 2020. And Unpost said that they were going to try to get find someone to reopen it. It hasn't reopened. Montanati closed. That hasn't reopened. Uh, High Street has closed recently. Now, that's being advertised. But uh, we don't think that's going to open. So what we have at the moment is we have contracts that were set up by Unpost. And to be honest, I believe if Unpost had a way, they would close half the post offices in the country. Are they, have, have they reached the point of diminishing returns, Thomas, for, for Unpost? But, uh, I'm sorry, Mick, I put it this way, right? Out in Blarney at the moment, there's only one bank left, which is the AIB. The AIB now is a cashless bank. So that means everyone now must go into the post office to either lodge money to the AIB or the Bank of Ireland uh, to get uh, foreign exchange. Blarney is a big tourist area. If people are looking for change money uh, or get money foreign exchange, it's the post office. The post office is really busy. In actual fact, it's nearly too busy. And the problem then is it's not getting enough funding to keep it open. So the issue here is we have a very busy post office that on post door want to close. But they know their the contracts they have make it impossible for people. I met with on post yesterday about this. And I was talking to Darren O'Rourke, our, our spokesman, uh, who had, was talking to on post also yesterday. Like, if we don't deliver this PSO, we will see... Uh, it's estimated 200 post offices close in the next 12 months. It's, and the thing about it now, Mick, is every time a postmaster or a postmistress retires, no one is taking it over. Right. What they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to put post offices into centres and super values and maces. They're trying to get them to coexist. But what people who own centres and super values, some of them are telling me it, it costs them money. The, the, the return from the post office is so low, it's not worth the business's money. Yeah, my own local post office is almost um, a card shop, a printing shop, almost a, a library. Uh, lots of various toys and little trinkets and stuff for sale for people's birthdays. Uh, you know, party blowers and that kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's a lot more than a post office, but I guess it needs to be to make the turnover to survive. 
we, we, we're looking for driving license, passports, we're looking for insurance, we're looking for more banking, uh, ATMs. There's so much more we could do in the post offices to make them viable and to give the, keep them in the communities. Because what we know is if you lose the post office, you, what happens then, people go somewhere else and they shop somewhere else and you can end up losing the local shop as well. So it has a domino effect on the communities. Uh. And the, the, like the other thing is, I've been out there now, uh, the, the lady who runs uh, the post office at the moment, uh, people, she's a, a beautiful person, the people love going out to her, she doesn't want to, uh, she didn't want to close, she took this up 18 months ago, but she said, currently, the lack of support she's getting from one post and the financial remunerations doesn't make a viable for All right, Thomas, we're going to have to leave it there. It looks as though they don't want it to continue at, uh, at head office, but if it's appealing to anybody, uh, there is a post office there that people can avail of and maybe uh, have an employment opportunity for your family as well. Uh, but yeah, Thomas Gould, TD, on, on, on the school's uh, crossing issue and on post offices, thank you very much. Uh, next on this uh, Worldwide Alzheimer's Day, We'll talk to a young lady, a singer-songwriter herself, uh, who lost her father uh, to that very affliction. Uh, her legendary singer-songwriter father. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. Good morning. It's just turning 10.30 and this is Mick Mulcahy in for Neil Prenderville. I'm joined by a legend's daughter who is uh, becoming a legend herself, very, very capable musically and who will be appearing in Debarra's in Clonakilty. Uh, fabulous, fabulous venue this coming Sunday night. Good morning, Ashley Campbell, Glenn Campbell's daughter. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thanks. Okay, we've got a bit of a delay. I'm looking at the 001 prefix, so we're obviously catching up with you in America. What part? Well, I'm actually in Ireland, but I'm on my American phone. On your American phone. I I hope that's not costing... bouncing the signal. I hope it's not costing (laughs) you a fortune. And I'm intrigued as to what you might have thought of the uh, the ad break in our previous conversation, but let's leave that. Uh, If if we can, Ashley, can, can I maybe have a look at your father's life? Um, his progression into Alzheimer's, uh, you know, your loss, uh, how how you dealt with that, and then move on to, uh, you know, you looking ahead and and your upcoming gig. Um, Glenn, your dad, Glenn Campbell, uh, was born into abject poverty, um, in, into a sharecropping family, I believe, from a town that didn't even warrant a, warrant a mention on the map. Um, but music was his salvation, and he showed that talent from a very early age. Yeah, that's right. My dad um, played guitar from a very young age. His uncle Boo taught him some chords, and he took it from there. He was a big fan of Django Reinhardt, so he learned a lot of what he knew from uh, copying Django solos. Mm -hmm. And Glenn Campbell, if people didn't know about it, uh, was of such talent uh, that he played with Frank Sinatra, uh, played with the Beach Boys, uh, was part of Phil Spector's Wall of Sound, uh, and so much more. Um, and there's a story I heard, I'm not sure uh, if it's true uh, or if you've even heard it, but uh, apparently uh, Frank Sinatra was eyeing your father because, uh, and then called probably his producer, which would probably have been Quincy Jones over to say, uh, I don't like that guitarist, get rid of him, he's staring at me. And apparently Quincy Jones said, uh, that's Glenn Campbell, he's not staring at you, he doesn't read music, he's following everything you do. Have a listen to his track uh, in isolation later, and you'll find out you're in the company of one of the best session musicians you'll ever come across, Frank. So there you go. Yeah, that's a great story, I love that. 
and of course being involved with the Wall of Sound and uh, is, is it fair to say you must be familiar with the music of Elton John Elton John had a, a partner songwriter called Bernie Taupin uh, and for your dad uh, there was one um, real constant by his side the guy that wrote all of the, 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 the big big songs for him Oh, yeah, that's Jimmy Webb for sure. The one and only Jimmy Webb. Um, Jimmy's, Jimmy's actually coming to Ireland in June, I think, and um, I'm opening for him with my partner Thor Jensen in the UK in early June. Wow, that's something I'd, I'd, I'd like to see. So your, your dad really, he became a global superstar. I grew up courtesy of my father on the, on the music of Glenn Campbell. Uh, of course, the big, big worldwide hits uh, resonate with everybody, and they would be Wichita Lineman by the time I get to Phoenix, Southern Nights, and especially, I suppose, the global hit. ABBA had their uh, dancing queen. Glenn Campbell had Rhinestone Cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> so to tell me, um, uh, Ashley, when when did you first notice uh, a change in your dad? When was he first diagnosed with Alzheimer's? Uh, he was officially diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2011. And, of course, you know, there were signs leading up to it earlier than that. He was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. But when the diagnosis came, we had to, you know, he had a decision to make because he still was touring at the time and, people were starting to notice what was going on. So he made the decision to announce his diagnosis so that he could continue to tour and share his music. And would that be because he wanted people to know uh, that maybe this show, maybe the next, maybe the one you're going to buy a ticket for could be the one at which the curtain comes down? I think he just wanted to keep playing. That, that was what he loved to do. And um, the beautiful thing about him continuing to play was that I think it kept him sharp and with us for longer than if he had stopped. Mm -hmm. I, I remember watching the documentary. Of course, you were playing side by side with your dad at all of the uh, the concerts. He'd open predominantly, if I remember, with um, it's known that your door is always open. Gentle on my mind. Uh, and uh, I noticed you eventually noticing him forgetting the words of that and knowing uh, it's really t kind of taking hold now. Yes, definitely. Um, the music was something that stayed with him for a long time, but he, he lost the lyrics fairly early on, So, uh, but he was able to follow a teleprompter to help him remember the lyrics, which was okay. pretty great. So he had, so, he had yeah, huge respect. Yeah, it was pretty amazing to see how... Sorry, the delay is catching us in places, yes, actually. Yeah, Glenn Campbell had huge respect Sorry, for Ireland and, and for its musical legacy. Of course, you probably feel likewise. You're coming back to West Cork uh, to play the Barrage. You played Ireland with your dad. Was that, was that 2011? It was, yes. I think we played, uh, we played a couple different places. I know we played near Killarney and we played in Dublin for sure. Okay. Um, do you mind if I play a song from your dad? It's a, it's a poignant one uh, and it's one where he very self-deprecating uh, in his style. He, he describes his journey ahead uh, by saying, I'm not going to miss you. Will you stay with me for that? And we'll talk about your upcoming gig, uh, sure. which, is, which is happening on, on Sunday evening. Thanks, Ashley Campbell. Sing my song 
Ashley Campbell. It can never be easy for you, Ashley, to listen to those words. Uh, the last one I'm going to love and I'm not going to miss you. But I read somewhere that you said uh, in times when you keep missing your dad, his vocals, which are so uh, they're so recognisable, his voice, the timbre of his voice, are, are kind of like a comfort blanket to you. Do you still find comfort in listening to his older music? I do, absolutely. It's nice to be able to, I mean, hear my dad's voice. I'm sure a few people can just pull up Spotify and, and listen to their, you know, lost loved one. So I, I, I made it a point that after he passed that his music would be comforting to me as opposed to making me sad. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about you. Uh, your dad has passed you on a heritage, of course. You're hardwired musically. Uh, you are a gifted player. Uh, you offer clarity, great songwriting and production. Uh, must be right up to the minute. So tell me about uh, what the last few years have been for you musically. Well, it's been difficult for sure with the pandemic, but I was able to release my album that I recorded in 2018. At the end, uh, I released that in 2020 in October, and um, I'm really excited about that album still. I'm finally out here in Ireland getting to tour those songs and to play them live for people, and it's just really great, and this album is very personal to me. And uh, how many songs on that album will you will you feature? And uh, I suppose once again to, to harken back to your dad, do people expect you to play some Glen Campbell songs, or is this totally Ashley? Uh, this tour is is pretty much totally Ashley, but I I always like to play a, one or two of my dad's songs, and um, because it's where I came from, it's part of my heritage, and it's part of who I am as a musician. Uh-huh. Uh, you came relatively late, though, to country music because you were raised in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and your initial calling was to study theatre uh, at college. So you eventually kind of came back to the family business when your dad asked you to go on the road playing banjo. Yeah, that's right. I, I ended up playing banjo for a, or learning banjo because I was in a play that needed a banjo player. So the theatre department bought me a banjo and paid for my first couple of lessons, and then after I graduated, my dad asked me to play with him on tour, so it kind of snowballed from there. It uh, seemed inevitable. And of course, the, uh, a lot of uh, American banjo would have its roots in Irish Celtic music. Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits did a great uh, delving deep into the links between Irish traditional music and that of Louisiana Cajun. Uh, and you as much uh, as he would love uh, walking into a pub, I imagine, and catching a session, uh, as we call it here, a musical session, and uh, maybe even partaking yourself, would you? Oh, absolutely. I re- <laughs> uh, the last time I was in Ireland, we were up in, um, where were we? We were up in Derry, and we walked into a pub and oh, found a session. I immediately eyed the banjo player and started talking to him, and we ended up jamming and singing the whole night. It was so much fun. So you love jamming, but your father's mum, your grandmother, um, that family went to America straight from Ireland, weren't they? They were the, was, was that the Stone family or the Campbell family? 
the Stone family. The Campbells were from Scotland. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think my my grandma's family is from Ireland. If not, uh, maybe her great grandma or something like that. Okay. So what can people expect at the Barras in Clonakilty on Sunday night, Ashley? What sort of a show? At Debarra's, um, it's just me traveling around with my guitar player and partner, Thor Jensen. And so we're going to do kind of broken down, really intimate show, versions of songs from my first and second album, as well as some classic country covers and a few of my dad's songs as well. Oh, it's a really nice night. Okay. That's Debarra's in Clannacilty. It's coming up this uh, this Sunday night. Uh, and on this uh, very poignant day, I guess, for you, this uh, World Alzheimer's Day, thank you for remembering your dad. Thank you for visiting Ireland. Thank you for having uh, and bringing the musical legacy of the Campbell family here. And we wish you all the very best with that gig in Debarra's on Sunday night. And particularly, we wish you all the very best if, like Ed Sheeran, uh, you walk into the odd impromptu pub uh, and sit down with some Irish trad people and uh, and bang out a few tunes, as they say. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ashley Campbell, uh, who's playing Debarra's in Clannacilty on this coming Sunday night. Now, instantly, three pairs of tickets to give away for the gig. Callers 9, 10, 11 on 0818-104-106. 0818-104-106. Three pairs of tickets for the Ashley Campbell concert, Debarra's in Clannacilty, this coming Sunday night. Text The Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red. And on this World Alzheimer's Day, we can tell you Alzheimer's Tea Day is finally back as well. After two long years because of the pandemic, the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland is inviting everyone to come together again for a cup of tea, a chat, and maybe a treat or two today, Thursday, May 5th. If you haven't got something organised, you can do it right now. Uh, And I'm sure we'll be able to pass on some uh, donation details to the uh, Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Thank you for the uh, attention. We have the phones lighting up like crazy. We'll give you the winners' names towards the end of the programme. But uh, here is uh, some of the fare you can expect on Sunday night, live at the Barras in Clannacilty as we give away those free tickets. Dan Campbell's daughter, Ashley Campbell. Running up the stairs to your bed Thunder rolls and I pull the covers over my head You say it's just a storm, enjoy the show You take me to the window and you show me that it's beautiful Never
that's Ashley Campbell, Glenn Campbell's daughter, playing in uh, the Barnes and Tonic Hilti on this Sunday night. There are a few tickets available, I'm told, for that. It's going to be an intimate show, just her and her partner, a guitarist. Uh, she is a uh, banjo virtuoso, which you can feel uh, the country element there. Uh, very confident musician, so depth and style there on Sunday evening in the Barnes in uh, Tonic Hilti. The statue we uh, mentioned of uh, Hollywood star Maureen O'Hara, removed from West Cork, uh, is meant to be coming back, according to locals, but they were left outraged that the bronze sculpture did the actress a disservice and felt it hardly resembled her. Pictures were abounding in the papers last night about it and locals in the West Cork village of Glengara were outraged that the bronze sculpture uh, didn't look like her at all and over a thousand people posted online expressing their horror and outrage at the work of art. So we'll be very interested uh, if there is a remodelling. Uh, I think probably the facial features were what uh, misrepresented her the most but she's a Hollywood legend of course and spent many, many decades in West Cork. Used to be Jane and Tarzan many, many years ago back in the 50s. Let's go back to our phone lines and to independent postmasters uh, Tom O'Callaghan. Morning Tom. Good morning, Mick. How are you? Good. Do you, re- do you represent the independent postmasters or are you just an independent postmaster? No, I, re- I represent a number of postmasters around the country and we're an independent voice and I suppose it's like everything, everyone is entitled to give an, a view and opinion and uh, this is one that we feel very strongly okay. about and this Ta- is one that... Can we get an part- honest interpretation from you uh, as to why it doesn't seem viable for uh, post offices to be taken on by a new... Uh, manager or owner of the franchise if you like, when uh, postmasters or postmistresses, if that's the correct term um, head off in in their own retirement are are they not viable businesses anymore? Well that's the problem uh, Mick you see, and and first of all let's mention about the postmaster, you're absolutely right in that great people and it is disappointing for them personally as well the the fact of the matter is it's a business model Uh, every customer that goes into a post office does a transaction and postmasters get paid per transactions so logically the more transactions you do the more you get paid the less you do the less you get paid so a transaction is what is is that selling a stamp uh, giving out somebody's uh, social welfare entitlements yes uh, yes yes, exactly that and and the problem with the model that we have as a post office is that we're heavily dependent on government contracts and our largest contract is the department of social protection so yes your pension would be one of those okay so um on post keep saying that they're engaged in local canvassing they keep saying we are trying to secure a replacement postmaster for the position but if it's not a viable business how are they going to do that are they hiding behind that statement you are absolutely right, Mick. It isn't, and, and you can't. Anyone in business or logically, you have to look at it and say, is this worth my while, first of all? And then what are the benefits? And the benefits have to be, you know, is it part of something that people would want? Now, let's be clear on this. You should have a break-even scenario after three years, and you should be hopefully looking to go into profitability in five years. The fact of the matter is, Mick, that if you take on that contract right now, your contract is looking at dropping even from today by 25 and 30 percent in income within the next two years so the answer is no you're actually going to sign up to something that's actually going to get you in our opinion into financial difficulty so that's no good for the community but it's certainly no good for the potential new postmaster taking on that responsibility okay so if it doesn't work uh, on the high street how can it work for instance if they're inside a centra a mace or a super valley or something 
Absolutely, it's the same argument. It has to stack up. And what happens then with the larger stores, they say, well, sure, why would I put in something that's not making money and has huge responsibility, Mick, right? You have to remember, you're dealing with people's money, you're dealing with large business lodgements. And if you make a mistake, well, you are at the pearl of that. So, like, if it doesn't make ad or economic sense, uh, you'll see what you see now in your shops is you're seeing a coffee machine put up the front, you're seeing seating areas where people can buy uh, eating food and sitting in a corner, or an off-license in the corner that generates a lot more income for that store than a post office in the corner. So we have to ask, well, what is wrong? And that's why we're making the argument that there is a solution. Yeah, on on the downside, of course, these services you provide are heavily labour intensive. But if you're to flip that around uh, and look at the you know the pros and versus the cons, uh, a labour intensive uh, operation like that is also very personal. Is also very comforting. Is also part of the fabric of a community. Well, Mick, I was invited down to Blarney and it and, and I travelled that night and I walked into that room and I sensed the upset and that to me is what this is about. It's the social element as well as a business model. I mean, the reality of this is I heard stories of people telling me that's their only contact. There are people out there that will never be uh, well, uh, online, let's say. So you need that person. In my own sight, I'm a postmaster for over 22 years. We're part of a family. We take care of Mary, we take care of John, we take care of their family. We have people with disabilities, with literary problems. We have loneliness, depression, and we're that port of call. I mean, last week alone, and I told this on the night, we had Jimmy that came into my site, and he was disheveled. And I said, Jimmy, are you okay? And he told me that his wife had passed of 20 years. And the reality was, he didn't know how to pay his bills, and he needed somebody to help, and that's what we're there for. And right now, Mick, and let's be very clear to the people of Blarney, that's been taken from you. That post office should not be closing. And it is closing. And when you take that gun, the heart of your village or town, and the danger is this, is if we make it political, it becomes a bigger problem. This is not to be political. It has to be joint effort. All political parties, all independents, saying, save our community, save our village, save that heart of it. But if we do not do that, and, I, and, and the importance right now is for Blarney, we have to keep it going, tell the government in a very loud voice, hands off Blarney, you're famous for the kissing of that stone. I went down twice. I bought a rock when I was seven years of age. I kissed the stone. I told the story. I went back when I was newly married and I licked that stone. We cannot allow the destruction of Blarney Post Office because let's be clear, Mick, as of January 2023, 200 more will close. As of January 2024, we're looking at 400 more to close. Who benefits? The pillar banks. Mm, I, I'm, I'm struggling to find any metric by which you could declare this government or previous ones are, are having success anywhere. Uh, you know, that this government could fall over a few sods of turf, for God's sake. Well, I suppose, okay, the argument that we're making is this. In 2016, November, we provided a private member's motion which was brought into the Dáil Éireann with the help of the independents, uh, Michael Healy and uh, Matthew McGrath. It was unanimously passed, unanimously. So you say to Tom, what is that? What it is, is, is a holding plan for five years. It is get a commitment from government to ensure new products, capital investment and government services into the network. 12 to and 17 more- million, 12 to 17 million, Tom. Uh, I, I don't want to cut across you, but I'm running out of time. 12 to okay. 17 million will keep how many post offices open that would otherwise close? 
I can tell you that if they enact what we're saying, all offices will stay open. And what's more to the point, it will generate income back into the village and town and not to the larger banks. It is all about keeping it viable. What I'm saying to you is this, can this be stopped? Absolutely. But let's make the people take the stand, make the voice known. This has got to stop. Mm, okay, uh, we leave it there. But I'm I'm just thinking of the ludicrous situation where one of the world's most famous tourist spots. Uh, there's not an American that comes here without wishing or trying at least to visit the Blarney Stone. And now they're going to be in a village where they can't post a postcard home. That's ridiculous. It, it is disgraceful. Mick, it's been a pleasure. Thank and you I very much, Tom. Thank you very much. Thanks. All the best. Bye-bye. Now, we have uh, news at 11 o'clock on the way on the Neil Prendival Show. Then I'll give you details of our summer sorted tickets for Riverdance on June the 5th. I'm Rory. And I'm Valerie. And you can join us for the very best in local, national and international sport every weekend on the Big Red Bench. That's the Big Red Bench. Every Saturday and Sunday from 6 on Cork's Red FM. 104 to 106. Red FM. This is the Neil Prendival Show. And this is Mick Mulcahy in for Neil until uh, Friday week, six minutes past 11. Uh, some texts on Maureen O'Hara. Mick, is there any truth to the uh, story? They've changed the name on that statue from Maureen O'Hara to Jessica Fletcher. Tongue-in-cheek there, says uh, Val. On the cost of living, uh, as an electricity pay-to-go customer, I strongly advise bill payers to brace themselves for their next bill. The 200 euro credit will take some of the sting out of it. Uh, my credit input that lasted a week ran out last night. Uh, not sure how many days that is into the week because they don't say, uh, but they say I've been watching the meter uh, and it's running out much, much quicker. On the maternity hospital, on the new maternity hospital, is it any wonder the country is in the state it's in when the Taoiseach thinks if you lease somewhere that you own it? According to that theory, every business in Cork that's leasing a commercial premises now own it. There's a lot of happy businesses, uh, business people today, and a lot of commercial landlords turning blue. Over 100 government advisors, the Attorney General, the State Solicitor, civil servants, uh, and this is what they believe. And if the government thinks uh, that this hospital is going to cost one billion, they are in la-la land. It'll be three times that much. Uh, and yeah, I think I know what he uh, what he meant by what he was saying. Like Guinness have a 9,000-year lease uh, on the uh, St. James Gate uh, brewery. So uh, they essentially own that to all intents and purposes when none of us will live kind of uh, to 100 years of age. Uh, I don't know who's going to get that back in 9,000 years or in 8,720 years or whatever. Uh, now, I may have gotten mixed up between Maureen O'Hara and, Mar- and uh, Maureen O'Sullivan, uh, who played Jane in Tarzan, uh, and that may be the case. Uh, now then, to uh, Mark Hurley, uh, who's... Oh, let's get to our competition first, because uh, I meant to do this before 11 o'clock and didn't get around to it. Uh, we were a little busy. We have a great competition uh, ongoing this week, live at the Marquee, uh, Riverdance, Sunday, June 5th. Tickets, of course, all the fun of the fair kicks off on May 27th. A huge programme uh, kicking off with the uh, Coronas, and Cork will be welcoming loads of acts to Live at the Marquee this summer. AikenPromotions.com or Ticketmaster.ie for info and tickets. But speaking of tickets, we have them to give away. Don't call us just now, but try to identify these two Eurovision songs. Uh, Riverdance, of course, having an integral part uh, and finding its creation uh, while being the interval act in Eurovision. We're not going to open the lines right now, but here's a sneak peek. What do you say when words are not enough? Ooh, uh, there are a couple of uh, intriguing ones there, aren't they? What do you say when words are not enough? Bye-bye, baby, bye-bye. 
Okay, uh, we will come to that uh, just before midday. That's our competition for Riverdance with Aiken Promotions. Each daily winner as well will be entered into the draw at the end of the week to have their prize upgraded to include a pre-concert meal for two at Sober Lane, Cork's lively gastro pub in the heart of the city. We've Michael back on line three. Hi, Michael. Hello. You wanted to correct me on something I said before the 11 o'clock news. Have I corrected myself? That's right, Mick. The, you were saying about um, Maureen O'Hara being in the um, Tarzan films. Was it Maureen O'Sullivan? Maureen O'Sullivan. Yeah. And she was the mother of Mia Farrow, who later married Frank Sinatra, you know? And Woody, um, what's his name? W- Woody, Woody Allen. Allen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. But uh, um, Johnny Resmer, he was Tarzan, but he uh, was in the 1926 Olympics. That's right. He was uh, he was an American swimmer, swimmer uh, yeah, who yeah. ended his life uh, quite sadly as a doorman in uh, Las Vegas uh, with a badge on his chest. I'm Johnny Weissmuller, Tarzan, uh, and getting pictures and signing autographs for very little money. Yeah. Uh, he was a superstar of his day, but of course uh, he didn't wear a cape. He just wore a kind of a loincloth. Uh, but he could swing from trees and talk to animals and do do all of the stuff. They were great yeah. days, weren't they? That was in black and white as well, Michael. That, that was right. Uh, that's right, Mick. And uh, the young boy that was in it, he was, uh, as they call him, boy, uh, he was um, Johnny Sheffield. Uh, who was Johnny Sheffield then? The small boy. That was his uh, actor's name, you know? Okay. And uh, uh, what did he go on to do? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think he, he went on towards being an actor later years. I mm. don't think so. Like uh, Shirley Temple didn't, you know. Yeah, Shirley Temple went on to be a United States ambassador, didn't she? She did, yes. Animal yeah. crack. Shirley Black. My soup. They were great days, weren't they? When, when TV was so innocent. They were, uh, you know. But Shirley Temple had some talent. Oh, she had, you know, she's a child actress, you know, superb. Yeah. And, um, but the, the, John, the Johnny Vesmer said back in the 40s and early 50s, that they stopped around the early 50s you know and the Tarzan films yeah you know it's when you look back now the special effects were all treated to they were simple movies made in black and white with a simple storyline good versus evil the animals would always come to Tarzan's rescue in the end and and teach the baddies a thing or two or two yeah the 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 monkey in it was Cheetah I think that's right monkey was Cheetah and most of them used to be shown in the the assemblies, the assembly rooms there in the South Mall, you know? Yeah, and if, if people have particular memories of going to the flicks, as yeah. we used to call them in Cork, then That's you're more right. than welcome to call us uh, on 0818 But thanks for that. Thanks for the correction. I kind of had figured it out myself. It didn't sit well with Maureen O'Hara. Maybe she wasn't <laughs> no, Jane and Tarzan. Was, yeah, was, I was right on Maureen, but not on the surname. No. Not on the person. Not. Okay, Mike. Thanks a million. Cheers, Michael. Bye-bye. Thank bye you. Bye. Bye-bye. Mark Hurley is on line two. Hi, Mark. Hi, yeah. Now, you've decided to set up a non-profit online fitness and nutrition page, uh, but you're aiming this at people suffering with mental health and anxiety, like you kind of had yourself. Tell us your story. Yeah, so um, when we had um, a daughter in 2017, and um, me and my wife worked shift work, so um, I suppose when my wife went back to work, it was a big shock to me all of a sudden being left at home for a long 12-hour days when my wife worked. Um, She worked days and nights as well, so... I uh, kind of started suffering mentally and I got very lonely um, during these long days at home and stuff like that. Um, so I started training in the gym doing weights um, and I found that it gave me a great um, great self-belief and, and built first confidence um, and kind of helped me in a kind of a dark period. 
So I kind of wanted to go to the next level and um, I trained for a photo shoot, so I hired a PT. And it was actually when I used the PT myself. Um, personal trainer? I, yeah, personal trainer, sorry, yeah. Um, so when I started using a personal trainer myself, um, I realised the how much joy that you actually get out of seeing people's results. Um, so I went away and studied sports nutrition in college myself um, on uh, part-time. So what I want to do is literally reach out to anybody suffering with their mental health, uh, depression, anxiety, um, goes out to single parents who can't afford PTs. Um, so anyone really that kind of needs help and needs a bit of guidance, um, that's why I set up the page and decided to go uh, totally non-profit with it. Um, okay, that's a, that's, that's a noble aspiration. Uh, so you're going to help people at no cost to them uh, overcome whatever mental health issues they might have through the medium of exercise and proper Absolutely, nutrition. Yeah. yeah, and I suppose uh, the, the main thing to know really is the only thing that uh, it will cost the time really is their time um, and I suppose what, what they'll be what they'll be spending on food, which is something that you have to buy anyway, you know. So it's a, it's an expensive uh, diet, really, um, and it's tailored around people's lifestyles, people that work shift. You know, just say it's an expensive or inexpensive diet? In, inexpensive, yes. Okay. It's, it's G- give, us, give, us, give us the basis of that, because on Cognizance, since working with Dr. Ava Orsman, uh, her, her saying always rings true. You cannot out-exercise a bad diet. Absolutely, yeah, I suppose... It, the diet is huge, but also you have to introduce exercise as well. Most of my clients, um, they actually wouldn't uh, use the gym because they wouldn't be confident enough. So what I do is I'd introduce cardio for them to basically burn off calories every week and hit a certain amount of steps every day. So just kind of as an example, most of the clients that, that are with me would kind of use around 14,000 steps a day. And in terms of cardio, I'd usually let the clients pick uh, what cardio how they how they do the cardio themselves based on the time that they have in the day. So you know if someone is if someone has enough time to go for a walk for an hour and burn off three hundred three hundred and fifty calories, perfect. If they only have a half an hour to spare, a lot of them would would use a treadmill at home, and you could burn off five hundred calories on the treadmill in a half an hour if you just put it on a bit of an incline with um yeah. Walking on, speed, on the flat you know? is, is not a big burner of calories, is it? Walking, walking on the flat. Um, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't burn as much, and it's a bit more time-consuming. But again, it's just down to the client and what suits them most with their lifestyles and what they're more confident in doing. You know, not everybody has a treadmill at home, and not everybody's confident in going to the gym. So, I basically just walk it around. You know, some clients they they like to go for a jog, but their nutrition is terrible. They might, you know, they might go for a uh, they might go for a couple of runs a week. And then after a run, they might stop off, stop off at McDonald's and get a few hamburgers on their home, you know. So it's just trying to educate people and, you know, see seeing how easy it is to, to fuel your body and the important. Sure. So um, g- g- give us a little on, on your protein needs, uh, going into deficit if you're trying to lose weight, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I suppose for myself, right, just to give you an example, um, I started uh, training for the photo shoot, so I was going into a, a deficit, really. I was losing losing body body fat. Um, so I started off roughly at around 260 grams of carbs a day. Um, I was at 170 grams of protein and 45 grams of fat. And over the over a 12-week period, um, I finished up on 220 grams of protein a day, um, 
120 grams of carbohydrates and 30 grams of fat. So how does that translate into uh, what's on the plate? So I suppose, yeah, it was, uh, that was fairly extreme, you know, what I'd done that time. Um, you know, you're totally, um, you're totally shredding your body to an extreme level. It's, it's not, it's not maintainable at all. Um, so I suppose I, what certain things I do is I'd always use porridge for my breakfast and I'd use water instead of milk because milk obviously contains calories and stuff. Um, whereas the water, your body needs water anyway, so it's just a way of getting a little bit extra water into your body. Um, a little trick for people that are listening, um, instead of using rice and pastas on diets, so you might, if you use the 150 grams of pasta on a diet, you weigh the pasta when it's cooked, not when it's dry. So it's a little bit heavier when it's cooked because it's wet. Uh, so what I would do myself is um, I use potatoes instead of rice and pasta. So one of my tricks is I get two potatoes, cut it up into wedges or chips, whatever you fancy yourself, um, leave the skin on the potatoes. Um, I put them into a pot and boil them. And as soon as the pot gets to boil, take it out. Um, basically dry, dry off the potatoes, put them into a little bowl with a little bit of olive oil and paprika and salt, throw them into an air fryer and you have 150 grams of potato. That will probably fill you four times over what 150 grams of rice would. So okay. Just... That's good tips. If you have 6,700 people following you on your page, how do you get around to everybody? Is there a personal service? You're doing it for non-profit. Yeah, no, just I suppose I I try and give people as much time as I can in general. Um, Like I know when you decided to go with the non-profit business, um, it's something I've been thinking about for a while. And I actually only started setting it up this week um, and my page has gone absolutely bananas with the messages and stuff like that. So it's just literally... um, designating time to each client as best I can throughout the day and I'm managing obviously my family life and my work life as well so you know I I, I do have time to get to everybody I, I don't have 6,700 clients as such I suppose they're, yeah, they're followers people taking um, advice and that kind of thing yeah exactly yeah and you know over the next few months now I'll be constantly uploading um, clients that are positive and clients that are you know happy for me to upload their progress and stuff like that where I also have clients that won't want me to upload stuff, um, so it's totally up to them. But just people that want to follow my page and keep an eye on on people's journeys and people's progress, you know, just I'd encourage everybody to follow. Um, and like I said, it's it's a totally free service to anybody. Um, That's why it makes it easy for us to have you on and to advertise it because it's uh, it's ambitious to be non-profit. So um, after you said you had your first child, your wife went back to work. You were left with time in your hands. You must have none now, have you? Uh, no, we uh, we actually have two kids now, so we have a boy that's three weeks old as well. So it's just trying to balance everything is is tough. But you know, um, I kind of found myself with the the cost of living has gone so high. Um, you know, the rent prices in Ireland has gone crazy. It's a it's a very tough time for people in general, and this is just a little way to give back to people that can't afford PTs or that need a little bit of help. You know, it's it's literally the just a small little gesture towards people, and if I can help even three or four people out of my journey, then it will be a success in my view. That's no. brilliant. Uh, um, all, all power to you in this one. This is, that's a, it's been a great idea. How do people find the Instagram page? How do they interact with you, Mark? So most people will contact me via message on Instagram. Um, and what I'll do then is I'll direct them to my WhatsApp. Um, so it's easier for me to, to just use one kind of app to contact people. And what, what, what the clients will do then is I, I'll, um, 
set our diets for the week. Um, I'll adjust things from accordingly. Um, I'll give my clients a cheat night once a week. Uh, this helps not only refuel your body from eating healthy six days a week, but it also uh, gives the client something to, to kind of look forward to. Um, it's something that my PT personal trainer at the time introduced to me that I never knew was possible. So, like, a client can go and get a Chinese on a Saturday night um, or if they prefer a chip or, you know, things like that. And it's just uh, to keep the to keep the body focused and, you know, something to look forward to on the weekends as well. So, um, but yeah, um, Instagram will be my main protocol and WhatsApp then is what I use for all my clients to contact me. Contacting. And, and it's great for that. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. the Instagram, what's what's the name of that page or how can I find you? Yeah, so it's MH Fitness. It's all small letters, MH Fitness 222. Okay. MH Fitness 222. Uh, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if you get uh, an uptake now from this interview. Uh, but it's a non-profit setup. It's an online fitness and nutrition page. Uh, it's aimed principally to help those suffering with mental health or do we, maybe just even pressure and anxiety. Uh, and anxiety, who maybe yeah, could people, make, you know, they could make the mental application to make things better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's just, you know, I've, I have a few people reaching out to me um, since uh, last night, even people that are suffering with illnesses that just needed a chat, you know, things like that. So, you know, my page is always open to everybody. You don't need to just come online and, and ask for a diet. I'm yeah. there to talk to people, to help people, anybody that suffers with mental health, you know, just hit me up on, on Instagram and I'll give you as much as my time as I can to help out. Um, I've even arranged to meet two or three people for a coffee that I wouldn't really know only from seeing their face around, but they're struggling with illnesses and things like that, and they've asked me to, to kind of meet up with them. and mm. Improve your mental health, stuff, so. change your attitude, uh, build your confidence, lose weight, feel better. Uh, there's no downside to getting involved here, uh, and it's a not-for-profit organization, MH yeah, Fitness 222. MH Fitness 222, and most importantly as well, you know, for people to know, I am fully qualified in sports nutrition, so it's not just uh, a random... A it's random not, just, not just Fred in the yeah, shed. I, I, I put in the time and effort to study and to make sure that I know exactly what I was doing so I could help people properly. Okay. So it's just... Yeah. Every best wish with a noble cause there. Mark Hurley, MH Fitness 222 on Instagram. He'll then direct you to his WhatsApp page and it could be uh, life-changing for people. Thank you very much, Mark Hurley. You're most welcome. Thanks. Thank you very much for having me on. Take care. Pleasure. Bye Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Now, Emma Coffey decided that a back injury would not stop her involvement in sport, so she set up the sportswear clothing brand Final Bend. Uh, good morning to you, Emma. Good morning. Good morning. Now, the uh, the big thing here is you set this up when you were just seventeen. Yeah. No. So I had come basically from a full background in athletics. My whole life, I'd been competing uh, up until twenty eighteen when I was in fifth year. A competitive point, pole vaulter. Yeah, I don't mind adding. Yeah, a competitive pole vaulter. So uh, not the run of the mill athletics uh, career choice. But yeah, I was competing at nationals and at internationals uh, in 2018. And then unfortunately, that summer, uh, I hurt my back pretty um, badly to the extent that I couldn't really compete anymore. And when you go from obviously training 
multiple times uh, every week and I had been training I would say a bit too aggressively maybe but like before school and after school and then competing on the weekends uh, when that was taken away I just had this huge chunk of time that I felt uh, I needed to fill and obviously I could have been studying for the leaving first but <laughs> I chose the start in athletics wear brand. I don't want to be flippant here but uh, I've never ever seen advertised an event that I could attend where competitive pole vaulting would be going on. <laughs> well yeah I suppose it kind of combines like gymnastics and then the athleticism of sprinting um, and a bit of awe factor with the fact that you're springing yourself a couple of metres into the air and then falling backwards onto a mass. And a bit of a, um, a, bit of a high so, jump in there as well as you go over the top, isn't there? Yeah, no, it's kind of like an artistry, turning around the pole and then uh, flying off it. So, Okay, but fair to say you built up um, a fair proportion of your personality around being an athlete. And suddenly this was kind of taken from you with by injury. Yeah, and I think once that happened, instead of, um, you know, kind of stepping back from the sport, I just wanted to stay connected because all of my friends were there and I felt like exactly a lot of my personality was built up around athletics. So at that point, uh, I looked into creating an athletics wear brand so that I could still attend the competitions, just selling clothes now. Okay, why uh, final bend? So final bend for me is the most motivational point in any race. So it's the last turn in the athletics track. And when I had the injury, I felt like for a lot of people, that would have been the end of their kind of athletics career. But for me, it was just my final bend. And I felt like I had a lot more to give still to the sport. So that was kind of the place that the name came from. Okay. You're hugely positive, okay? The, the, the clothing <laughs> range evolved. I, I think we're still talking about you doing your leaving search at this stage, are we? Yeah, so at that point, I was in fifth year and I kind of began it that year. But um, obviously, the next year then, there was the leaving search. So uh, the business grew at kind of like, you know, I thought it was growing hugely, but it was probably only growing a tiny bit. Uh, it wasn't really until when I started college and then obviously with lockdown I had more free time because uh, college became online so it was at that point then that it really formed into a job for me because before that it had definitely just been a passion project. Okay and uh, with passion of course uh, there wasn't any outside investment coming in so as any new business or most new businesses would you have to funnel uh, all of the revenue that you get straight back into the company was that the case here as well? Oh, 100%. And like, uh, thinking back, you know, I had a zero budget for anything, really. It was a tiny company uh, with like no startup costs, really, because I was 17. I didn't have any money to put into starting a company. So when it uh, got to kind of lockdown and I couldn't um, approach clubs or gyms, which I had been doing before to kind of do custom gear for them, I had to look at marketing like straight to customers so with a zero budget i realized i'd have to make organic content so i looked at tiktok and instagram and i started making videos just showing what uh, at that point you know 19 20 year old was doing running a business and doing college on the side in a day and people like really seems to respond well to that and uh, i ended up growing a small following on tiktok which and um, really just put exponential growth onto the company uh, through 2020 and into 2021. Wow, and how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? I know you're in third, third year uh, doing a commerce degree, is it in UCC? In UCC, yeah. So I'm now 21, so I'm feeling quite old. But <laughs> uh, 21, but uh, and the business has got uh, 
It's grown. You did, did someone say you had 600,000 in turnover or something? Yeah, so uh, I think that was published um, as the uh, one of the awards that we're up for at the moment is actually on tonight. It's the Cork uh, Emerging Company of the Year, Cork Chamber Dinner. So it's on tonight, so my fingers are crossed, uh, but I'm just happy to be there, really. Uh, so, yeah, like, it was kind of, it came from a place that, uh, you know, was started out of Passion Project, and now it's become me yeah, a fully-fledged company, uh, which has been amazing, and I've managed to take on staff, and we're in a warehouse now uh, doing all the distribution from Blackpool. So wow. it's really, really exciting. So you're employing three people. What sort of products are you selling? Is it, is it like the Under Armour range or whatever? Yeah, so uh, I suppose over lockdown, there was kind of a move to people wanting really comfy clothes. And I just responded to that with, you know, supplying leggings, but more so uh, really comfortable leggings that you could wear to the gym or you could kind of lounge about with. So it was really at leisure. So athletics wear, but also mixed with leisure wear. And recently then um, I decided that from our most previous collection going forward, every single product that we would put out would be made from recycled or eco materials. And so our latest collection, our EcoSoft collection, is made from recycled plastic bottles. And we are able to do this now at an affordable price, which is really something that I'm hugely passionate about. Um, So really exciting. Wow. Uh, You say uh, in your press statement, in 2019, I was working as a food and beverage assistant in the Metropole Hotel. And that was hosting Championing Cork, the Cork Chamber of Commerce. So while working at that event, I was inspired. And having recently founded Final Bend, I was then determined to make it a success. And we wish you every success with it tonight. How can people access your your marketing? How can they get access to your products? Oh, so it's... uh online at finalbendfitness.com but definitely follow the Instagram so final.bend and I've actually done a discount code for anyone listening today it's just redfm in the discount code box wow. <laughs> your, your commerce degree is uh, really paying something here isn't it uh, <laughs> that, that's a great way to get customers by giving a discount code so redfm is the discount code Instagram is final.bend is it yeah final.bend and how much does the discount code give you uh, it gives 10% off <laughs> Okay. If it was five, I would have called you cheapskate. If it was uh, 20, I would have said you're too generous. I think you're, sp- <laughs> you're spot on there. Thanks, Emil. Okay, 21-year-old Emma Coffey, four years into the business. We wish you all the very best, and especially at the awards tonight. Uh, and well done for cracking 600,000 euros in, uh, in revenue last year for Final Bend. Well, let's hope it becomes uh, a global brand, and maybe we'll see the Final Bend corporate jet. Uh, I saw the Under Armour <laughs> one uh, in Dublin recently. So maybe there'll be a Final Bend corporate jet, and I'll be bumming a spin off you. Oh, yeah. I'll hit you up. <laughs> Thanks a million, Emma. Thank you so much, Mick. Thanks. Cheers, bye-bye. 11.31 now. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. 26 minutes to midday on the Neil Prenderville Show with Mick Mulcahy. And Jess Nivuelon joins me on line two. Good morning, Jess. Hi, Mick. How are things? No, uh, good. Uh, you're an advisor to Sinn Féin TD Martin Kenny. Yeah. But that's not why we're talking to you. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just to get it out there. Um, but you have tweeted before about your own journey. Now, um, I hasten to say that since we raised uh, the HRT and menopausal issues on the program during the week, um, I've had texts and I've been stopped uh, while out for a meal. Um, uh, the landlady of, of, of a pub restaurant said to me, can I just thank you 
uh, for bringing up, uh, and it's not me, it's the production team, I just do what they say. Um, but there's <laughs> been a groundswell of recognition for the raising of women's issues that I was uh, heretofore, uh, never happened to me when, when doing this programme. So we seem to have struck a nerve, it seems to have been appreciated, uh, and I hope you're visiting uh, the issue now live on air uh, will will be of value to other ladies and, and families listening out there. You got a hysterectomy at a very young age. I did, yeah. I was, ju- it was actually just before, about three weeks before my 28th birthday when I had to travel to London for a full hysterectomy, including like removal of my ovaries and my cervix um, in London. It was 2019, October 2019. Wow. Uh, that is uh, an operation of incredible finality. And I would imagine chronic pain. Yeah, that that's kind of that's kind of what led me to it in the end. Um, like I would have had, uh, I would have had difficult, uh, I would have had difficulties with with gynae related issues for years before that, um, and like kind of had been shoved from pillar to post in terms of like doctors who were looking after it. Like you know, one doctor would say it was a gynae issue, another would say it was a. Uh, an intestinal issue and it, it this just kind of went around in circles for a so everything years, from maybe IBS to colitis to pelvic inflammatory yeah. disease or uh, diverticulosis that kind of thing yeah the, like it was it was everything and anything and then sometimes it wasn't anything do you know um, like I would have been in and out of hospital a lot for pain management would have had a lot of um, ruptured cysts and I suppose it all kind of culminated the summer of 2018 um I had surgery to to diagnose endometriosis um, and one side of my, so like obviously you've, you've an ovary on either side, one side was completely blocked, the tube and the ovary weren't working and the other side, um, I think they had managed to remove the adhesions but about four weeks later I actually had emergency surgery on the ovary that was working um, because it had developed a growth. Wow. And it was a benign growth, but it was emergency surgery. I had to have the ovary and the tube removed immediately. Um, that, that's a robot-assisted operation. That doesn't happen here, is it? No, no. So that, so that operation did happen here. That was, um, that, was, that, that was kind of leading up to the hysterectomy. That would have been November 2018. I then had a third operation in March 2019, to try and save the other side, but at that stage it was too late and it was the hysterectomy then was robot-assisted in October 2019. Okay, okay so you've been getting cysts since you were 15. Yeah, yeah, I have been. Um, and, like, do you know, like, I suppose, like, some women, some women might get one cyst in their whole life and then some women are plagued by them. So for a while I had a diagnosis of um, polycystic ovaries and then it was changed to endometriosis and eventually after the hysterectomy we found out that I had endometriosis. I also had a chronic infection from having um, a leak in appendix a few years previous to that that went untreated and it just attacked my um, it attacked my reproductive organs. Like I had one of the surgeons say to me that it was the, um, when he saw the adhesions, he said it never in 30 years had he seen adhesions like as extensive as mine, which was like, in one way, it kind of makes you feel better that you, that like there was obviously a reason for the operation, but when you've been in chronic pain for so long and then you come out of that chronic pain and you don't have it, you actually start to wonder if it was that bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm just scanning through your... Uh 
your piece in the uh, is the Echo or the Examiner, the uh, the Echo, a uh, year and a half ago in September 2020, yeah. uh, where you uh, say Dr. Matt Hewitt in the Bonds went above and beyond for you. Uh, but there's a very he poignant piece here. Well, yeah, amazing, you say. Uh, you had a five centimeter cyst to deal with, and poignantly, the girls, your buddies, were sending you baby scan pictures, and you sent them back the cyst picture, trying to laugh your did, way yeah. out of it. But you must have been in incredible pain, were you? I was, like, I suppose at that stage, Mick, I was just in, it was like flight or fight mode. So I was like, look, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I was transferred from one hospital up to the bonds to see Mr. Ewitt, and he, he, like, dealt with it immediately. And, like, I, I suppose by the time I got to him, it was probably too late. Uh-huh. It, was, it was just too late for him to, like, that's one regret that I have about it. If I had, if I had tried harder to... I, I I don't know, I suppose maybe if I had pushed for a different referral or an earlier referral or, you know, I did, I, I had asked them um, an early, like earlier, previous, a uh, few years previous to it, I had asked for um, a laparoscopic surgery just to diagnose what was going on. And I was actually told no by a consultant that there was no need. But you've been down... Normal period pain. Yeah, you've been down, just such such a difficult and varied road uh, with, you know, multiple diagnoses, most of them wrong. Then you get the good one, uh, the one that's correct. I won't say good, but correct. Um, yeah. And then there's the finality of the operations that you had. Uh, and does then, uh, and I mean, you know, I'm asking this because I imagine it does for a lot of women who have this sort of surgery. Is, is there a sort of a mental... Um, I wouldn't say torture, but is there a, a re-examination of the timeline to say, maybe the pain wasn't that bad, or maybe I gave up too soon, or maybe if I did this, this would have happened? Mick, those are questions that I ask, that I ask myself constantly. Um, and some days are easier than others. And I have come to terms with the fact that I needed the operation. Like, I had to have it. I needed it. It was a life-saving surgery. But I suppose I will always have those questions. You know, what if I did this? What if I did that? Did I make the right decision? Did I, you know, should I have attempted IVF first? But I suppose the one good thing for me was I was able to speak to my surgeon about six months after the the hysterectomy. And I, I, I just asked him straight out. I said, did I make the right decision or did I give up too easy? And he just said with the level of, um, I suppose, the level of complications I had, like I had a perforated uterus, um, I actually was already in menopause before the operation without even knowing it. Um, I wouldn't have had, like, my reproductive system wasn't working at all, so I didn't even have a chance to, to freeze my eggs, I suppose. By the time I went to do that, it was too late. Um, but it, it's always a question. I always, I suppose, something I, I, I come back to constantly, was the pain bad enough to, to, to take that chance of having, you know, given my parents' grandchildren... So you're, pro- you're probably going through post-traumatic stress disorder as, as, as a soldier would coming off a battlefield, maybe. Do you know, it's actually funny you say that that has been something that has been discussed since that, um, that um, they, I suppose, they, like that, that, that was a complication at the surgery. Not even just that surgery, but I suppose years of being in and out of hospitals and then, you know, like the fact that I suppose when I, when I had the growth that time that that was an emergency surgery, like, I had been complaining for weeks with pain and I was being told to ignore it. Do you know what I mean? And so, like, it's then when you realise, like, if I hadn't pushed, what would have happened? Um, and I suppose, especially given the, the level of infection as well, like, I mean, like, I, like it got to the stage where my, 
like my um, my immune system is is compromised now, like, and it's something I'll live with for the rest of my life, like. Yeah, and of course, through all of the struggles and the hardship and the medical uncertainty and the finality uh, and everything mentally and physically uh, that uh, has been part of your ordeal, uh, you then became godmother to your cousin's baby, Mila. Uh, and that joy, of course, is tempered with the knowledge that, of course, as much as you adore uh, that little baby, that you have to accept you'll never be a mum yourself. It is, and I suppose that was that was kind of interesting. The the timing in our family around that around that um, like do you know my my cousin like she's like I I only have one brother, so my cousin is basically like my sister, and um, we're very close in age. And I suppose you know she was like experiencing like being pregnant with her first child and all the the amazing like joy that comes with that. And then I was dealing with the fact that like you know I had to first of all I had to leave the country for um, a proper, like, I suppose, um, a, a more detailed diagnosis. And then six weeks later, I had to leave the country again for a robot-assisted surgery that I could have had in the CUMH, but that wasn't available to me because of my age. Do you know what I mean? So it, it was kind of a weird thing, but I suppose, like, I always say that, like, Mila was a godsend when she came along. She came along at just the right time because it's like a form of therapy. Like, I just, I love her like she's my own. Mm. And always will. Yeah, always will. She'll be ruined. Okay. Uh, that, that's a happy side to the story, but let's get back into the real nitty-gritty now of the uh, four weeks ago and the examiner you had a piece because you rang 23 pharmacies in search of cru- crucial hormone medication. Uh, that, to be fair, and no, no detraction against other women, you would seem like you need it. Uh, and if this stops, this supply stops, it might put you in serious, serious difficulty. Yeah, like, I suppose that's that's kind of the difference there, Mick. You've kind of hit the nail on the head there. Like, when you go through, like, a natural, you know, perimenopause and an actual menopause, it's different because your your levels slowly deplete over time. When you go through surgical menopause, like what happened with me when your ovaries are removed, um, it's it's instant. It just it happens overnight, like, do you know what I mean? So it's, you're, it's almost like your body goes into shock. Um, like, there was a shortage after I had the surgery, when I had the hysterectomy, when I left the hospital in London on that, I think it was a Monday I left the hospital, I had the surgery on a Saturday. Um, when I left the hospital, they gave me a prescription for these transdermal patches. So it's similar to a morphine patch, except it has HRT. Uh-huh. So I left the hospital with that prescription and actually, funnily enough, a prescription for morphine for a few weeks afterwards. Um, and... I I think I got I think that was about a three month um supply. And when we got to the end of that three month supply, obviously I was back home in Ireland and the patches weren't available. Uh, now they they were available depending on where you went to, but there like there was there seemed to be a shortage of the dosage I was on. I was on a very high dosage. Your dad was carrying um, them across from London for you, was he? Yeah, he was. I actually contacted my surgeon in London, um, Peter Burton Smith. He is amazing. Um, and just said, look, this is the situation I'm in. And he was like, that's not a problem. I can write you a prescription because he knew my dad was, he, he was working in London at the time. Um, so dad was actually able to bring home um, a six-month supply of HRT patches. Now, that obviously got me through kind of the worst of COVID. But obviously, after that, things changed in terms of travel, your ability to travel, things like that. Um, and I suppose the work situation with dad changed as well. Um, so if I, w- I went 
I went on the uh, HRT tablet for a while here, which just didn't suit me at all. I wasn't able to absorb the hormone from it. Mm-hmm. Um, then I was able to get the patches again, which was fine. And here we are now. Here we are again. to a shortage. Um, yeah. Now, I have been able to source a reliable supply. Um, I'm actually in Dublin now. But, like, uh, do you know, I suppose... The reason I'm talking about it, Mick, and the reason that I, I'm so open about the hysterectomy and everything like that is because, like, what's happened to me, what's done is done. But if me talking about it can, like, just, you know, if it can push some other woman to kind of say, no, this isn't good enough, I want something, I, like, I want this pain investigated, or I want, um, you know, I need a reliable source of HRT, then... You know, like, that's my, that's like, I've done a good in the world out of what happened to me, if that makes sense. Like, I'm helping another woman. Sure, but what, what strikes what strikes me. me is that you had to leave the country to get the operation, to get the medical procedures. Now you're obviously looking outside the country as well to get the medicine. Yeah, yeah, I was looking outside the country to get the medicine. Um, I suppose the biggest problem is that it's gel, and obviously there's, uh, you know, like, I mean, they wouldn't mind if you're carrying one or two bottles of gel through airport security, but, you know, I yeah. go through two bottles of gel a month so if someone's coming through an airport with 12 bottles of gel they're obviously going to be concerned um so now as i said i was able to i was able to to get um the gel in a pharmacy in dublin but i was actually speaking to that pharmacist yesterday she was having to source the gel from a french distributor because it couldn't be gotten in ireland or england um Wow. They're just like there. There doesn't seem to be any HRT shortage in mainland Europe or in the US, but there's a there's a consistent shortage here for the last few months. And what was happening then, Nick, is people were changing from, let's say I'm on the gel now. They were changing to the patch, and if their pharmacy didn't have the patch, they would change to this spray, which mm-hmm. I haven't used, but I've heard of people using it. Um, so what was happening is as they were going through the different types. Those were then becoming low. Becoming low, yeah. And I, I believe women are swapping, uh, you know, they're, they're supporting each other with, with swapping of medications to try and overcome the shortage. I, I've got to kind of leave it there. I want to salute your journey and your bravery and uh, everything you've gone through, especially coming on the air and talking about such personal is- issues, uh, Jessny Voilon. At the start of our introductory piece, I was told you're an advisor to Sinn Féin, TD Martin Kenny. It had nothing to do with what we're talking about, but let's finish on that topic. As a female advisor to a male politician, uh, do you add value when it comes to women's issues? Do, do you think the predominantly male population of Dáil Éireann understands the gravity of some women's issues? I think, and look, obviously, can I just say this is a totally personal opinion. Um, I think gravity is, I, I think there is a gravity to it there now. Um, like I would have actually spoken about it a few weeks ago when David Cullinan launched a menopause policy that Sinn Féin had put together. And part of that was, like part of it was prioritising the kind of um, was prioritising um, finding a solution to the HRT shortages. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I like I do think people are are more aware of it because more of us are talking about it. Like I'm not the only woman working in in the party or or you know in Leinster House. So like it is it is an issue that women are talking about. Like that. I think there was a taboo around it before, like yeah, you but know, not, not anymore. Keep, keep keep that voice no, out there. I, I'm so. I'm reminded when we're thinking of women's issues now of the great uh, black comedian Richard Pryor, uh, who uh, maybe 50 years ago now he's long gone, of course, uh, uh, when AIDS was starting to become prevalent. 
uh, he had the temerity to go on stage in a national audience and say, they say AIDS uh, is an epidemic now. That means white folks is getting it. Uh, and But it had the desired punch effect, uh, you know, that sucker punch that made politicians sit up and take notice. And I hope this shortage, as bad as it is for the women who are suffering without the HRT uh, medicines, uh, brings the gravity of the situation to light to the predominantly male population of Dáil And let's hope some good comes of it anyway. Jessney Vailon, thank you very much for joining us this morning. All right, thanks, Nick. Cheers. The Neil Brindeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday, 0818-104-106. Seven minutes to uh, midday. This is Mick Mulcahy. We have Live at the Marquee River Dance tickets to give away each and every day. And uh, tomorrow, all of our daily winners will go into a draw to uh, have their prize upgraded to include a pre-concert meal for two people at Sober Lane. Now, we're not opening the lines just yet. Uh, we'll take another phone call before we do. But Sober Lane is Cork's liveliest gastro pub in the heart of the city. So we want you to guess the artist and the title of our two Eurovision songs. But don't call just yet. Just have a quick listen. What do you say when words are not Okay, one more listen for you. What do you say when words are not Well, the first one is easy, the second one maybe not so. Final call of the day uh, outside of our competition, that is, goes to Anthony and College Road, a regular on the programme. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Mick. Nice to talk to you again. Oh, you too. You know, you're fairly disgusted with Rona Mahoney, the former master of the Rotundas, uh, and with her comments yesterday, more particularly. Yes, you know, about this children's hospital, it's a bit like the non-event centre here. I think it's going to go on and go on and go on. I think we'll all be dead and buried before it'll be built. But... She made a statement on the radio yesterday. She said, the nuns are gone. I'm paraphrasing now, so I'm not going to get myself into trouble Mm -hmm. or you into trouble. But she more or less said, she did say the nuns are gone and the Catholic religion is gone. Okay, that's in in reference to the ownership of the land that the, uh, and whatever Catholic bias might be applied by the owners of same land uh, to practices that might... Uh, pertain and be available in the National Maternity Hospital. What she's really essentially saying is that there will not be any church interference. Do you think that she would say um, there's not going to be any Muslims and the Islamic church is gone. It won't be involved in the hospital. Do you think she would say there'll be no Jews in this hospital, or Jewish practices, or Jewish faith, or Judaism. But it's, no, it's not, it's not, a, and was not Muslim or a Jewish owned land. It was in the control and the ownership of the, of a Catholic order. Uh, and I think that's what she was trying to say, and that there, there will not be interference or any bias, uh, religious bias in the offering of services. But Nick, I'm sick to death of people constantly Catholic bashing. We had fantastic nuns. We had Catherine McCauley. We had our own Nano Nagel. We had Sister Concilio and her sister, both sisters and sisters. That Stanislaus Kennedy. Sister yes. Stanislaus Kennedy. And on the health side, I, I remember with, with, with great fondness, Sister Fidelma in the, in the Mercy Hospital did great work over the years. Yes, and the Mercy Hospital was absolutely fantastic. It was run like 
clockwork. I remember going in there as a child, I got bitten by a dog and the nuns were, it was just absolutely immaculate and it was run like clockwork. Almost out of time, now, Anthony, but do, do you think, as, just as a final question to you, do, do you think that there should be religious bias uh, available to sway uh, the uh, and change or prevent uh, the offering of, of, uh, of services uh, in, in a in a female sense, in the National Maternity Hospital. Do you think religion should have any part there? Well, I don't know. If you're going to go down that road as well, I mean, if you look at the UK and if you look at America, people pay an absolute fortune for a Catholic education and send their children to private Catholic schools. And here, we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater if it wasn't for the nuns, we wouldn't have what we have. We wouldn't have nurses. We wouldn't mm. have had teachers. But there are those that say that if, if it wasn't for the British, we wouldn't have a peer in this country or, or you know, or a slipway. Uh, but I'm going to have to leave it there. Anthony, thank you very much. And we're going to open the lines now on 0818 for our competition on Riverdance. Two tickets to give away for Sunday, June 5th, live at the Marquee. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818 Red FM. Very quickly to our competition and to line one and to Anthony Pickford. Hi, Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Hello. Hi there. You're in Hi. Limerick, if I remember correctly, from the old request show. You're always ringing in. Uh, I know. Okay, Riverdance songs, here they are. Johnny Logan, what's the second one? Brotherhood of Men, save your kisses for me. Oh, save your kisses. <laughs> you got it. You're on the way to Riverdance, and I know your mum was a big fan from all, all those years ago when you were doing the request. Thanks very much, Anthony. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, baby. Bye-bye. <laughs> the Neil Prendival Show today was produced by Seamus Whelan, Kevin Galvin, by Mark Willington, and Clara Connor. I'm back tomorrow morning after news at nine. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.